500 years ago, he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck. And upon the skull of the man who killed his dad, he said, I'm mad, I must eradicate piracy, injustice and cruelty. And all my sons will follow me, so evildoers will believe that this man cannot die. The Phantom, the ghost who walks, the enemies beware. The phantom's always there, but you won't find the phantom. He finds you. G'day everybody, and for those who are coming late, you're listening to the Phantom Podcast Expand. This is episode 96, and today we have for you an extraordinary interview edition where we get to talk to a very, very special guest. Not just a very special guest, but a very, very special guest. Um, you probably already know who it is because you can see the title of the podcast, but this is an exciting opportunity for us, something we've been discussing, talking about for a little while. So uh, let's get down to it. My name is Jermaine, and today I am joined by Dan. How are you, mate? Very good, Jermaine. Very good. Very excited to be here. Mm, yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Um and for those who are watching the, uh, the, the podcast or the video podcast, you probably see that they cannot see Stephen's face. So, yes, you guessed it. Stephen, again, has missed it. But in all seriousness, he should be joining us a little bit later. He uh, is probably just wrangling a few kids at the moment. Um, and family duties always come first. So uh, hopefully we will hear Steve a little bit in a little bit soon. But... Okay, so let's before we talk to Steve, uh, before we talk to Tony, sorry, let us go through a few stats. So there's only been four daily newspaper strip riders, and these are confirmed non-ghost ones. That's another discussion. So Lee Fork has done 194.5. Elizabeth Fork has done 0.5. Because she helped him Clace, finish those last ones uh, in the hospital. Yeah, Clace Ramifi has done three. And then from 1999, Tony DePaul has done a whopping 51. So that's for the dailies. For the, for the Sundays, we've got uh, Lee Fork, Elizabeth, Donnie Avenuel, who um, I believe did a, one of the stories that was uh, published in Egmont and then they copied it for the newspaper. Then you've got Clace Ramifi, uh, Graham Nolan, and then from 2003, which is interesting, Tony D. Paul. That will have to be a question we asked you why there was a four-year gap. Um, before this, begin began writing for Team Phantom Man, or Semic, in 1993, uh, which was Fiery Revenge, which was done by uh, Thelmay, which has got some beautiful artwork. A total of 64 stories, and the most recent one was 2013 story. So... Uh, been writing fandom stories for 25 years and as the reigning newspaper author is among the most influential fandom personalities alive in the world today. So, Tony, uh, that is a very big write-up on you. Um, welcome, and how are you going? Uh, well, I'm delighted to be here. And I know we've talked about doing this a, a couple of different times and we've exchanged emails, but I'm glad that it's finally happening. Yeah, I, for me, I must admit, up front, I'm a little bit more excited that we can call you the current Phantom Rider. 
Um, I'm glad that whole mess got sorted. <laughs> That's right. Last uh, last summer, I guess now, wasn't it? Last May or right? Uh, that that is all sorted out. We were kind of in limbo for seven or eight months over that, mm-hmm. and then and yeah. So there's a there's a deal now, and I'm glad to be back. Yeah. And, and that's certainly something we want to probably explore a little bit more um, as well. But can we, maybe maybe if we start at the start, Tony, you've, you've already said before we started recording about um, working in newspapers and that sort of thing. Can you give us a bit of a, a history of yourself in terms of um, how you started writing, your various experiences writing? And obviously we've been doing The Phantom for 25 odd years, but um, you know, what, what, what's the big picture of Tony the writer? You know, it's all I've ever done uh, from when I was a kid, and uh, uh, my uh, career in uh, uh, parochial school in Philadelphia was mostly about uh, nuns seating me in the back of the room where I could write by myself, and it's, uh, you know, don't bother anybody, don't talk to anybody, just do your thing. and uh, Or they'd give me a book and say, you know, be quiet, don't bother anybody. Um I think my first thought of ever being a writer, I was probably maybe eight years old, and uh, my best friend who lived right across the alley, the alleyway in the city, uh, he went into the hospital for a surgery, and uh, I wrote stories, and his parents brought them to him, and uh, when he got out of the hospital, he said to me, you're going to be a writer, and I, I knew he was correct. You know, it was, uh, and that's, so that's what I've always done all through, uh, high school. And I aimed at a career in journalism as soon as I went to college. Um, did some freelancing and, um, you know, I started in newspapers full time in probably early 1980, I think. And I was in papers until 2006. Okay. What sort of journalist were you? Like a sports writer, uh, political, you know, what, what sort of thing were you into? Uh, you know, we all did everything. It uh, was kind of jump and run, you know, whatever the breaking news is. So, um, you know, you might, I mean, you might do everything from, you know, covering some local board that's taking up some question that people are interested in. Or, uh, you know, you may get sent out to the airport to, uh, you know, grab a two-minute interview with the Secretary of State who's, you know, changing planes or something. So it was it was a whole range of things. It was, uh, you know, you go in in the morning and you really don't know what you're going to be doing. It's whatever there is to be done. Uh, so that's mostly my, my training is in is in journalism. And I, I got into... Um, <laughs> comics and you know i'm really not a comics guy i'm i'm kind of a i'm a professional writer in for 40 years in many different genres uh but you know uh back in the late 80s early 90s uh my kids were young my wife was home raising the kids for about a dozen years so we were a a one income and uh I was looking for freelancing opportunities. That's basically how I got an introduction to um, an editor at what was then Semic Press. And they gave me a tryout on The Phantom, and 
I got in, I think, nine years of writing for them before King Features was looking for a writer. That was that was my entree. And you know, I've done I've done a, a dozen uh, screenplays. Only one was uh, part of an ongoing production, uh, and uh, a lot of my script ended up getting chopped by a director who wanted to write his own. Uh, but I do have that sort of one, one sort of orphan IMDb screenwriting credit uh, on a on a movie that I would not urge you to rush out and see. Uh, I was just going to ask you, what was the movie? And it was a golf movie of all things, right? Uh, it was about the life of Bobby Jones, who was the uh, Depression era uh, sports hero in America, and uh, a really interesting man. Uh, I was I was hired to write an original script back in oh gosh I want to say it was 1993 or so. Uh, my instructions from the producer who hired me was uh, whatever you do don't make this about golf. <laughs> so it's about the man and, and you know what kind of what kind of person he was. Uh, he gave up a really lucrative career in professional sports and uh, commercial endorsements to just kind of live a quiet life as a, um, I guess he was a contract lawyer and to raise his family. And so he, he rejected that whole leap from amateur sportsman to professional in, in the 30s, early 30s. And um, so there was a, he, he had a really interesting story. Now what happened was when it, they it took 15 years to put together a, a financial deal on this picture. And uh, when they finally did that, they brought in a director who wanted to write his own thing. He kept maybe 5% of my script. Oh, wow. And I mean, the movie was a complete bomb. It was, it was all about golf. And it was like excruciating to see every shot in, you know, the 1929 British amateur. <laughs> uh, so... But we had real actors in it. There was uh, Jim Caviezel and Clara Forlani, uh, Aidan Quinn, Malcolm McDowell. It, it's really one of, it's, um, it's one, of my, one of my near misses. I thought that was going to be my break into screenwriting. And um, it turned out to be that, uh, gosh, uh, what is that thing that uh, in Field of Dreams, Burt Lancaster's character, when he missed out on his baseball career, uh, and he says it was just like, you know, having your dream brush by you on a sidewalk and keep going. And that's exactly what my uh, what my movie experience was like. Um, but you know, it's uh, uh, it, it's uh, you learn from everything. So it's uh, you know one more thing that goes in the bag of tricks and you move on. So. Definitely. So. Hopefully, there's another movie at some point in the in the future about a a, a certain purple, a purple character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would love that. Uh, but you know, my big fear at King Features was that there would be a deal, and I would read about it in the newspaper. You know what I mean? <laughs> I would like never even be uh, uh, consulted uh, on that. And uh, that was part of the that was part of the dust up we had a year ago, actually. Right. right. So, okay. 
So have you, um, who, who are some of the writers that you would um, look up to or have as heroes um, in, in the, you know, your favourite novelists, your, fi- your favourite writers across any spectrum? Oh, gosh, there, there's uh, so many. I mean, I guess when I was a kid, it was mostly like uh, Jack London and uh, Ray Bradbury. And, of course, you know, um, uh, we, we, all, we all read uh, Brave New World in 1984 and all the, all the sort of stuff you would read in school. I'm just now catching up on a lot of the classics that I missed. I mean, somehow... I think I got through my whole youth without ever reading Lord of the Flies, you know, uh, William Golding. And um, just found out last week that um, a friend of a friend in England wrote a, uh, wrote a biography on Golding. So I think I'm probably going to run through his whole collection of novels. And uh, um, Yeah, so uh, I've got a, a professor friend of mine at Brown who teaches writing is always throwing books my way. So you got to read this, you got to read that. Uh, he was a, he was a very tough critic on uh, my novel manuscript, which is an adaptation from one of my uh, screenplays. Um, and, and he's a good critic because he's not afraid to, to, uh, you know, be straight with you. A lot of people are. And, uh, and I've given the manuscript to uh, uh, some people who, uh, the feedback you get, uh, it leads me to just say, you know what, I, uh, I guess you're too nice to really help me with this. Aren't you? Right. It's like, they don't want to hurt your feelings. Right. Um, but the, the, the criticism, his big cr- criticism of my, uh, my novel manuscript is that he said, you never took your reporter's hat off. You know, you're, you're writing this story as a journalist. And uh, so he keeps throwing... Um, he keeps throwing different books at me, and you know, if I can uh, get into them, I do. If if he thinks there's something I'll learn from uh, this one or that one, I mean, some of them I get a hundred pages in, and it's I'm done with it. And others, others I get within forty pages of the end, and I'm done, and I walk away. You know, it's uh, uh, you know, Telegraph Alley. I mean, I just couldn't couldn't read that. Um, and then others are. Delightful. I had never read A Passage to India, and I just read that recently. So kind of catching up after a very busy career. So, yeah. But hopefully you'll see my novel in print one of these years, but I I won't even get a chance to uh, get another crack at it in 2018. So next, next year at the earliest, I think. Is, is that because you're just still catching up? getting ahead with the Phantom strips? Uh, well, no, it's just uh, so many other things going on uh, in life. And, um, you know, the um, I'm really not that far ahead. Uh, I mean, before we had the contract problem, I was a good year ahead, a year and a half ahead, over that long stretch from 1999 on. And, um, I mean, you know, I think I'm... I think uh, Jeff on the Sundays, I think he's got script for maybe the next three months in front of him. Mike has maybe another five or six weeks before I'll be sending him copies. So that's been a new experience to kind of write the, I mean, everything is plotted out ahead of time. Yeah. And it's approved by King Features. And, uh, 
and then after that, uh, you know, as long as I as I know where the story is going, I can kind of send them four to eight weeks at a, at a time and then get on to other things I need to be doing. Awesome. So did you read comics or, or anything like that before? Or? Oh, yeah. As a kid, I mean, I read all of the things that we all read, Superman, Batman, uh, Green Lantern, The Flash. Um, uh, and I got a little older. I really liked Archie comics. I think around 12 I started liking that. Um, so were but, you a Betty or a Veronica man? <laughs> uh, Betty. <laughs> My wife is a Baron, but I'll say Betty. Uh, and the newspapers, I mean, I read, it was probably the only thing I read in the newspapers initially. Uh, the Phantom most of all. I mean, that's one of my earliest memories is um, before I could read, you know, picking up the newspaper off the step every afternoon and spreading it out on the living room floor. You know, you flop on the floor in your elbows and read the comics. The Phantom was one that, like, immediately got my attention. And so it's just so strange that, like, 40 years later, I would... I would be asked to write it. I mean, it's just so improbable. <laughs> so, obviously, Lee Falk would have been the newspaper writer then. Um, do you recall who the who the artist was that you sort of fell in love with um, to begin with? Yeah. Well, I caught just the just the tail end of uh, Wilson McCoy's run uh, because I would have been I would have been looking at the Phantom in like 1959. Yeah. And. Uh, and then, uh, but of course, the one I most associate uh, with them is is Cybari. You know, those were uh, uh, when I was really reading things. It was it was Cy who was at the drawing board. Awesome. So that you've got a lifetime of being a fan there. I mean, we can see the the Phantom statue in the in the background there. Did you collect comics and did you collect um, Phantom paraphernalia and that sort of thing as a as a kid, as a young person today? Yeah, no, there there really wasn't anything. Um, there wasn't anything in those days that I was ever aware of, and I, I'm really not much of a, a collector uh, for a few reasons. That um, you know, I'm 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 rough on stuff. I lose things. I I destroy things. Uh, you know, and I I can barely find the stuff I need to use every day. <laughs> so. Uh, and I, I kind of am hard on stuff. I mean, I've, you know, like totaled two cars and one motorcycle, and I, I lose stuff all the time. So, no, I would be a terrible collector, uh, but I, uh, I really appreciate the collections. I mean, Paul Ryan was so proud of um, all of the stuff that he had. And I remember the, the first time we met, I, he just took me on a tour of uh, his studio and showed me every little bit of Phantom gear that he had he had accumulated and of course now um uh pete klaus you know pete is the is the expert uh, uh he's a he's delightful and uh he's been so kind to me over the years he can't seem to he can't uh speaking of collecting stuff he can't seem to walk past past any little bit of harley davidson stuff and he'll send it to me uh, money clips and lighters and little badges and <laughs> so uh, I'm always hearing from Pete you know <laughs> yeah no he's um he's like that I'm, I've, I've probably speak to him probably once or twice a week as well um you know with 
story and stuff like that of what he's found or what I've found is um, we've had him on the podcast, oh, what was it, probably about maybe four or five episodes ago, Dan? I heard that. It was it was uh, a lot of fun. And uh, it's just, uh, it's always a delight to hear his voice. You know, he'll pick up the phone to tell me a couple of jokes, you know. He's just a funny guy. Yeah, he is. So how... Um, how did you become writing stories for a Scandinavian publisher and Semic back in the day? There must be a good story behind that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I had a friend from high school who was uh, in comics. He had some kind of uh, entree at Semic. I don't know what he ever wrote for them, but he knew I was looking for freelance work, you know. Um, uh, we had moved here to uh, Rhode Island. Uh, the kids were young. My wife was home with the kids. We had this killer mortgage that, I mean, it took, uh, I figured out once that my take-home pay for the first two and a half weeks of the month, that went to the bank on the mortgage, you know. That's like before you buy a loaf of bread and a quart of milk. Uh, so I was, he knew I was looking to make extra money. And he, he introduced me to an editor. My memory is correct. It was a, a young female editor. I never wrote anything for her, but somehow she got me to Ulf Granberg. Yeah, okay. And, yeah, and, you know, Ulf gave me a, a tryout. He wanted some ideas. I shipped him some ideas. And uh, uh, Ulf is pretty discriminating on ideas. You know, you, you send him three, and he'll pick one, maybe. Uh, so he was, uh, he's pretty, he's a tough editor, but I started working for him and he very quickly became, uh, a family friend. You know, he would, he would, uh, hop on a jet and come over here once a year and stay with us for a week. And, uh, uh so he kind of watched my kids grow up and, and us, his kids. Yeah. I think, uh, his daughter, Carolyn came with him once or twice. And uh, we're we're still friends. I I think I was on the phone with them a few weeks ago. So. Okay. Yeah. Wow. We're um, uh, with Pete's help, we're trying to get Olaf on the podcast. So um. No, dropped. it's Pete. Uh, I must have heard that from someone. Maybe it was from Mike, but uh, I mentioned it to Olaf the last time we spoke. Okay. So, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully we can get him on. I think he'll be a um. Uh, a fascinating uh, person. He's because he's been involved with the fandom for so long, especially in the heyday in the eighties and early nineties, and um, you know, in Norway and Sweden and stuff like that. I'm sure he would be a fascinating person to talk to. Uh, he, he absolutely would be, and uh, you know, he's one of the uh, the go-to sources when uh, there's some gap in my knowledge of phantom lore. And, you know, I, I think the last time I spoke to him, um, we were talking about some of the old classic folk stories that could kind of use another another go, you know, a bit of uh, retooling and uh, kind of connect them to something that's going on in the, in the current story. So he had he had four or five ideas on that that I'll, you know, very seriously. Because he wrote stories as well, didn't he? He did occasionally. I think he was really, uh, really busy with the editing. But yeah, he did. Yeah. He wrote stories. 
So that sort of that sort of feeds into the next question, which is um, when you started working for for Semic and, and writing stories for them. Um, were, you, you just said that Alf Gramberg was very discriminating. Was that around the idea of what would fit into Lee Fork's phantom law, or um, to what extent did you consider that you had to stick within Lee Fork's canon? Um, and we've actually got a, a question, I guess, from um, from one of our patrons, Callum Markin, um, has sent in a question um, asking that at that time, would you have considered yourself to be a Forkist, someone who just worked in the Fork canon, or a modernist who was prepared to um, take things in your own direction? Well, um, I, I wouldn't call uh, Ulf or really that whole enterprise, Team Phantom, I, I wouldn't call them Fulkist because they... They pretty radically um, depart here and there from uh, uh, from the canon, as you, as you say. The, I mean, they did away with uh, Lamanda Luaga as president, and uh, you know they, they did some things that I thought was completely insane. Like you, you know, you blew up the treehouse, you, you know, you blew up the well. You know, uh, uh, I think the I well think... was a, the well was a big shock. <laughs> I remember reading it like, what? What? You can't do that. <laughs> um, well, I thought that uh, King Features really had a very long leash on Teen Phantom, and they basically said, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know, I don't know, um, I mean, I think it's a business decision. There's another, there's a company that's willing to, uh, you know, pay you some money to run one of your properties. Uh, I think they just were happy with that deal, and uh, they weren't too... Um, strident about saying you you can't do this to the universe, you can't do that, and I, you know I really think that's fine as as long it's people do perceive it as two separate universes. So uh, me, I, I I try to stick uh, pretty close to it, but uh, I'm also conscious of of how Falk changed things up here and there over time, and so I'm. The question I always ask myself is, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm changing something here. Is it reasonable to to believe that Falk would think this is a, a good thing to change? Or is it something yeah. that he just, he would consider really uh, sacrosanct and you don't go near it? So uh, it's always yeah. sort of, it's uh, almost a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, forensic psychology or, or something like that. Did you ever but, think? Uh, did you ever meet Lee Fork? You know, I—that's one of my big regrets—is I, I never did, and I guess it's because in that interim uh, in the '90s when I was writing for uh, the overseas books, it never dawned on me that uh, I'd be writing for the newspapers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that Lee Falk will go on forever, you know. It's sort of the—you know what—I haven't met Cy Barry either, and. I'm feeling like, uh, well, size has got to go on forever, you know. <laughs> uh, the, the truth is, I'll, I'll you know, the Psy will, you know, still be around. I'll be, I'll get wiped out on the motorcycle or something. But uh, uh, I, uh, Pete keeps trying to get me down to uh, to New York to meet Psy uh, there. I'd love to do it. Actually, uh, Psy uh, sent me a, he sent me a phantom drawing and a, a signed drawing, uh, I want to say 15 years ago, uh, when I, yeah, after that, I had a pretty bad motorcycle wreck, and I was in the Rhode Island Hospital for 10 days 
know, getting bones screwed back together. And uh, this thing from uh, from Cy made its way. Yeah, yeah, really a, a gentleman, a nice guy. Well, he's um, as you say, he's still kicking on strong as we're recording this. I think it's um, the 13th of April in, in Rhode Island. And so tomorrow, the 14th, um, Cy Barry's actually attending a New York Comic Con. So he's still... Uh, He's still um, up and about, even at uh, 90 years old. So, yeah, like uh, Burt Bacharach, right? Still on stage, 90 years old. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, God bless him. Yeah. So, how do you do that forensic uh, analysis or, or, or psychologist, as you said, about trying to get into Lee Fork's head and what he might have done? Um, then, if without having met the man, is it more just trying to interpret his stories, or, or how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, sort of looking at patterns in the stories. Um, I mean, if you look at some of the early, um, the early work, uh, 30s and 40s, you know, for example, the uh, uh, the art was pretty. Uh, what's the, what's the word for the way Africans were depicted in the art? Uh, was fairly grotesque, you know. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, and. Um, you know, uh, folk knew that, you know, the era, era of colonialism in Africa and Asia was ending. And uh, I think that's why, uh, you know, old Colonel Weeks, you know, this sort of vaguely British guy. I mean, he didn't have the, uh, you know, the handlebar mustache or anything, but uh, he disappears one day and there's Colonel Warubu. I, th- I think that was Lee Falk saying, you know what, it's modern times in Africa. Uh, we're not going to have this white guy running the show anymore. Uh, yeah. Time for an African to be at the helm, you know. And then you had Luaga become president, and you had the whole uh, yeah um, you know, becoming um, breaking from the colonialism with um, you know, and then they had to fight with General Babu and Lamanda Luaga and stuff like that, and the UN coming in and, and, and stuff like that. So yeah, there was definitely that shift. Well, you look at, uh, I mean, he, he didn't make um, uh, Diana a, a stay-at-home mom in the treehouse. You know, she had a job with the UN and had important work to do. So she's a mom and a working woman at the same time. So he was kind of, you know, Falk was kind of, um, he wasn't stuck in the past. I, yeah. I've always had the sense that he was kind of uh, evolving with the times. Um, I mean, and it makes sense that he would have a perfectly progressive outlook on on things. He's an educated guy with a career in the theater. He lives in New York City. Um, you know, uh, so it's you know, I I I feel certain he would have broken the gender barrier in the Jungle Patrol. I mean, that's an easy call. Yeah. So that was that was coming. You know, if uh, Lee Falk was still on the job. Well, those are the kinds of things I uh, I look for. Um, the only thing I know for sure is he would never blow up the well. He would never blow up the treehouse. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to uh, be true to the best parts of, of what he created. I think it's it's really a work of genius. I think that's why it's still around. Uh, and at the same time, I want to. Uh, uh, I can't just. I'm going to safeguard the things that need to be safeguarded, and also bring along the things that. 
That's not. I don't know if it's six. Yeah. Uh, the last time I wrote um, wrote like the uh, I wrote the origin myth. I think it was a week long um, version of the origin myth when Paul Ryan was on the dailies. Uh, there's, you know, part of the folklore I should, probably should have disposed of. I thought about it and I did. Now I wish I did, but it was that whole thing about how uh, uh, the Bandar were slaves when the first Phantom washed up on shore, yeah. and uh, he, he freed them from slavery. And that falls right into this criticism that we get of, uh, it's like, you know, the Phantom as white savior come to help the poor, you know, benighted Africans. Uh, so I, I should have done away with that, and uh, if I do the origin myth again, I probably will. Yeah, I, uh, I think you raised. I think you raised. It's always Yeah, like I, I personally, um, like with the, don't want to go too much down the rabbit hole, but with the movie um, uh, Black Panther, I always I thought the latest Tarzan movie was actually a better movie, but because it had the the old legacy issues. Um, a movie like Black Panther gets a better get, gets better press than say something like Tarzan. I haven't seen, I haven't seen Black Panther yet, but I uh, but I will. I think the last comic movie uh, I saw was Wonder Woman. So. Yeah. So um, now you made mention about females in the Jungle Patrol. Now I know um, uh, you've got daughters, correct? Yes, three daughters. Yeah, so did that have a... Because it's one thing I've noticed in your stories is that there's been a, a strong uh, female presence. And I know uh, as a father of one daughter, the second one coming along very soon, um, you kind of look for a lot more stronger female role models, in a sense, for your daughter and that. So was that a, 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 um, a conscious effort to be able to create more female, stronger characters in the fandom lore because, you know, you've got three daughters and stuff as well? No, I, I don't think so, really. Um, no, I think I probably, if I had three sons, I probably would have done the same stories. Um, you know, uh, Falk, I mean, some of the very early stories, you know, those female uh, gangs, female criminal gangs that uh, the Phantom battled. Uh, wasn't there a bunch flying around in airplanes, landing on the secret island and all that? Uh, you know, Falk was, uh, he kind of already set that standard. I, I think he set that standard right from the very first strip. The, the, the very first three-panel strip was Diana um, knocking out Mike in a, in a boxing bout. Yes. So, you know, I think, I think the standard yep. was set pretty early. <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a wonderful strip. There. But, uh, yeah, so that's, that's uh, right in the Lee Falk tradition, I think. So. And I think that it, that's really good to hear that you sort of have identified that Lee did move the story with the times, as you say, and, and times change. You, you know, the world's different now than it was 10 years ago, let alone 25, let alone 80. Um, so to hear that you're mindful of that, you know, that's, um, I think that is very much in the folk tradition. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things in the, in the old, uh, the old stories where I'm, uh, you know, on the one hand, I want to kind of uh, touch base there and kind of honor those things and and uh, bring them into the present day. Uh, 
you know, I'm not really sure how to do it in some cases. Uh, you know, he's got a, he's sometimes it's as simple as a location. I mean, he's got uh, he's got a castle in Europe somewhere. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we ought to uh, ought to make a mention of that at some point. And, uh, you know, um, I'm not really sure what to do about the Isle of Eden. Uh, you know, uh, Toma. I think Toma needs to come back at some point. Uh, that's a character I kind of lost sight of. Uh, what do you do? You know, speaking of Isle of Eden, what do you do with the uh, the more unusual creatures there? You know, his, his, and hers, or however. Um, yeah, Steggy. Yeah, Steggy the dinosaur. So, uh, so anyway, those are the, those are the kind of questions. How do we? Uh, uh, I kind of like to. Uh, I like to connect the past to the to the present, uh, if it can be done in a reasonable way. And uh, on some of those issues, you really do uh, grasp for a way. I haven't haven't resolved it yet. Mm-hmm. All right. Um... I, we're sort of jumping around a little bit now, but um, the the taking over the newspaper strip. You, you know, you said that you was you know in the nineties you would never have expected that you would you would end up there. Um, how did that opportunity present itself? How did you move from like because you wrote the first um, stories after Lee Fork passed, and there was a bit of um, jumping back and forth between yourself and whether it was Graham Nolan on the Sundays or, or Clay Smithy on the dailies and the Sundays. And then there was that four-year gap that um, Jermaine mentioned where you took over the dailies and the Sundays came later. Can you talk us through that little period and, and what was going on there? Yeah. Um, you know, that was that was Ulf Granberg again because uh, with the suddenness of uh, Lee Falk passing, uh, Jay Kennedy, the editor at the time, uh, kind of relied on, on Ulf to uh, keep the material flowing. And that's why some of those first stories were, um, they were basically things that we had published overseas. And then we retooled them a bit for the, uh, for the newspaper pages. Uh, and I do remember that a lot of those, it's sort of like you agree, you, you agree to volunteer to do something and then you're stuck with it. You know, and I, <laughs> as I recall, a lot of that, a lot of that work ended up on Ulf. Uh, you can ask him about that. He was, and he, you know, he wasn't getting paid to do it. And this was in addition to his regular job, which I'm sure only kept him busy for 65 hours a week. <laughs> so, you know, uh, he, uh, he tried, uh, Jay wanted to try uh, me out on the script and Clay's, and that's what happened. And uh, uh, we traded back and forth for a while. I think... Uh, it was. I did a daily and then took one off, and then did another one and took one off, and it was eventually the way it panned out. It was. Um, it was mine. So, uh, but yeah, but Ulf, I'm sure that. Uh, I mean, Jake. I do remember this. I mean, Jay Kennedy didn't know who I was when Lee Falk died. Uh, so his his he got to me through Ulf, basically. Right. Right. That's that's really interesting, and um, and. Was the, the the differential between the Sundays and the dailies that was just part of the uh, the sifting through process after Lee Fork's death? I I do think so. Um, I don't recall that it was. You said four years. Uh, that seems like an awfully long time, but maybe that's correct. 
Oh, I'm going off Phantom Wiki, and uh, it, it hasn't let me down before. So, um, my understanding is that the day, the first daily, was about halfway through um, '99, and your first Sunday. Uh, so that was the Ghost Wall, um, about halfway through '99, and the first Sunday that's lit here is uh, Terra and Mawitan in uh, April of '03. Right. Yeah, Clay says. Uh what, six Sunday stories here Yeah. between January 2000 and March of 2003. Uh, so, yeah. Well, I do. I think that's exactly right. It was things were getting sorted out, and Ulf was uh, kind of getting out of the business of being a free editor for King Features. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's the way it happened. And look, there's probably that you've already said that at times you're months or even a year ahead of the strip, so perhaps you were writing it uh, well before '03, and, and obviously that's when it just was published. That that may be, uh, but yeah, my instructions from Jay Kennedy, my first editor, uh, were uh, I, I want to get two years of script in the bank, and I don't know why. Uh, I mean, that's an awful lot, and no one at King Features. I mean. They're lucky if they're three weeks. They got three weeks, you know. Um, but he said, uh, get two years ahead. And I, I never really succeeded at that. I think I got, at the most, I was maybe 20 months. So I got close to it. Um, so we had always, until recently, until last year, uh, the, the artists were always getting completed scripts. Yeah, and getting them months before they needed them. So they had time to, to look up references and actually read what the story is. <laughs> that said, I haven't yet run into an artist who actually reads the whole script. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, so in some cases you have to write defensively. It's uh, on this panel, you know, what are the eight possible ways this could be misinterpreted that will... Uh, create a continuity problem three weeks from now. Yeah, yeah right. Um, when we, when we spoke oh, to Cy Barry, actually, he was um, he, he talked about moments of dissonance, I suppose, between himself and Lee Fork about how things were going and that sort of thing. Do you, you have a um, you've got to be conscious of how how strict are you, I guess, in terms of what the panel must look like? Oh no, that's that's the artist's uh, call. I mean, the uh, God, I have enormous respect for these guys. They're they're just so talented. And so hardworking. Um, I mean, you know, like in 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 Lee Falk's day, uh, I mean, he basically supported a career as a stage play producer on what he was making on the King Features, you know, on on the Phantom and Mandrake. I mean, nowadays, your 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 syndicated comics writing will barely cover your syndicated comics writing career. You know? It's just a very different era. So, uh, I mean, these guys, they, they, don't, um, they don't nearly get paid what they're worth, and they work tremendously long hours. And I, I, had, to, uh, I had to laugh when Mike uh, said on your podcast, right at the very end, he said, oh, I've, I've been working this whole time, you know, so we can keep talking. Yeah. I mean, that's so like him. Um, when Mike... Uh, when Mike uh, was hired to do this, and I called up to introduce myself, 
We talked literally nonstop for an entire work shift. We talked for eight hours, right? And at the end of eight, and he's 300 miles away, I could have actually driven down there in five and a half hours. But uh, at the end of it, I said, oh, my God. I said, I've probably really set you back. You know, we talked for eight hours. He says, no, no, I've been working the whole time. <laughs> and they told me how many pages he had inked, you know, how many strips. Uh so, no, these guys, they're, uh, I mean, they don't work for me, and they're not, they're not potted plants. You know, they, they, uh, they get to interpret the script. And that's actually, that's really part of the fun, is to see how these guys interpret the writing. Uh, you know, very occasionally there will be a panel where I kind of say, ouch, you know, and I go back to the script. And I may find a line or a word choice where I misled the artist, you know, a little bit. Um, so, uh, no, they're great, these, both of these guys, and I'm just so happy to be working with them. Do you actually see it before it goes to publication, or is it um, in the newspaper the first time that you see how it's turned out? Well, it used to be uh, I would see them really late when there was no time to fix anything. And we had... Um, kind of a real problem on uh, a couple of Paul's scripts on that. And so now I do see them. And, and I did for maybe the last two years of Paul's run. Uh, so I do see them when there's time to fix errors. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't happen very often. Um, it happened uh, very recently with, uh, with a strip of Mike's. Uh, but it was kind of an easy fix, and he's always happy to make it. Um, but if the strip ran as is, it was going to create a continuity problem. Let's see, it was a Wednesday. It was a Wednesday and a Friday of one week. Uh, it was going to create a continuity problem on the following Thursday, and so you know I was in touch with him, and uh, he said no problem, fixed it. And, uh, and, of course, uh, some of the more hardcore fans would notice um, a, little, a continuity issue like that. You'd probably hear all about it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> of course. Uh, sure. And it, it's gratifying that people are looking at it closely. Um, this, yeah, I probably shouldn't say much about the, the particulars of it. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's always a delight to see the, uh, the work come over, I think. You know, just about an hour ago, I had something from um, from Jeff, and that was a uh, that was a Jeff will also send me rough pencils because he's sort of getting back into this character after not being around it for a, a number of years. So uh, sometimes I'll I'll pick up a, a glitch or two at a very early stage, and uh, that makes it easier for ev- for everyone, you know. Um, he just sent me one the other day that is just so so well done, and uh, he's pretty far ahead. I, I seem to think that's uh, that strip will run in July, so he's. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I think um, both those guys will put uh, the odd thing up on social media, and Jeff's quite good at um, showing you one frame without dialogue or you know pretty early in the or just after inking sort of thing and um we say i'll find out what happens in july i think was the last one i saw of that too so yeah yeah this was july 8th that he sent me the other day so uh, 
Yeah, he's doing a terrific job. So uh, I'm delighted to be working with both of these guys. And, you know, all of the artists have been have been fun to work with. Um, Graham Nolan. I think, uh, actually, Graham, Graham paid me what may be the, the, uh, uh, the best compliment I ever had from a comics artist. And he told me, he said, you know, he said, you're, your stories are sometimes hard to draw, but he says, I love drawing them. Okay. And I, can't, I can't, don't remember which story that was in particular. Uh, but, yeah, well, you know, they've all been great. Terry Beatty, a wonderful guy to work with. Um, you know, I do think that King Features has, uh, I mean, there's so many good artists out there, and the work is kind of thin, you know, and they've, they've really got the pick. You know, it's kind of a buyer's market. Um, so, yeah, happy to be working with these guys. Yeah, cool. We might just, I did have a question that we, we had later on, but um, uh, another one of the, the guys who, who have contributed a question for us, one of our patrons, is Sean Bassett. And he's asked, um, do you actually vary the plots of stories or the scenes within the plots of stories to suit the strengths of a particular artist, um, without naming names necessarily, but do you, are you mindful of which artist is drawing which story, or, or that doesn't come into it? Yeah, uh, no, not really, because they can kind of do it all. Um, you know, sometimes, I mean, some writer, uh, some artists really hate to draw certain things. So, uh, you know, I'll often run that by them. Uh, because I can give them a different story. If someone really doesn't want to draw a B-29 bomber, you know, I'll uh, give that to, uh, to the other artist or go on to a new idea. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's no shortage of them. So, yeah. And um, have, you, have you ever met any of them personally? You just mentioned um, speaking with Mike for a long time, but uh, catching up face-to-face. Mike's been on for two years. I haven't met him uh, in in person, though. I, I keep threatening to. He's only 300 miles away, uh, and we're both uh, we both love Vietnamese food. So there's a great Vietnamese restaurant around the corner from him, and uh, I know the place where he lives because I grew up maybe oh I don't know two miles from there. I was, he's just on the edge. He's just on the edge of one of the older suburbs in Philadelphia. And I grew up in East Philly. And uh, we used to walk up to this area where Mike is in Upper Darby. Uh, so I'm going to get down there sometime soon. And uh, Jeff is out in Illinois. You know, if I can get headed west on the motorcycle this spring or summer, I'll be stopping in Illinois. Cool, cool. Um, that's, uh, it's interesting to, to sort of think that these people who are uh, working together to create something that we love so much have, have not necessarily laid eyes on each other. <laughs> well, you know, I, I worked for uh, Brendan Burford at King Features for 14 or 15 years before I ever met him. Right. And I've never been in the building, so that may be surprising. In 18 years, I've, I've never been in the building. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, the uh, the Hearst Tower. I'd love to see it someday. But when now it's all done, uh, you know, this is all done. Used to be done by fax. Now it's all, you know, by email and instant messaging and stuff like that. So especially with uh, with Semek then Egmont, 
because those artists were all over the world. I'd be working with an artist in Spain or Argentina and, and uh, yeah, you never, I mean, you rarely meet anybody. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So what's, what's we, we ask this of, our, of the artists all the time about their actual creative process and um, it's interesting to speak to a, to a writer. Um, I guess famously in the technology at the time, Lee Fork used a typewriter and almost all the way to the end. Um, and then would annotate by hand and um, something that's very popular with collectors is getting a hold of those those actual scripts with the hand annotations and perhaps a little sketch from the artist as a, as a thumbnail sketch or whatever that, that panel might look like. Um, I assume that you're all word processor these days and um, well, I guess what's your process from uh, conceiving an idea? Um, do you, I'm an English teacher myself and, and I would teach kids, right, you've got to go through a brainstorming and a planning process before you start mm-hmm. to flesh that out. Um, I, I guess it, that's a long-winded question, but basically what's your process as a, as a writer? Uh, you know, it starts with, um, I mean, I may get up out of bed at three in the morning with five words that I need to write down so I remember them in the morning. Uh and, you know, I've got a, a file of, there must be a hundred ideas in it, uh, fleshed out, you know, to a greater or lesser degree. And sometimes you'll go back a year later and <laughs> make a fresh note. This is a terrible idea. Never write this story, you know, that type <laughs> of thing. Uh, I've done that. Uh, so, you know, the, I think it's mostly like the germ of the idea is uh, kind of subconscious. And, um, but I always work from an outline and I always write a complete synopsis of a story. Um, and that's, I mean, that's good practice anyway. You know, I do that with other kinds of writing as well. Uh, but it was really a requirement at King, uh, when I started working for Jay Kennedy, uh, you know, he wanted to see the story beginning to end. Okay. Yeah. So to make sure there's nothing uh, out of character where uh, the Phantom beats three guys to death with a baseball bat, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, in all these years, I've never had a story rejected from King because, you know, I know the character and uh, it's not like I would suggest something that's, like, grossly out of character for him. Yeah. Have you, have do they make many changes to the actual um, script, or have they ever? No. No, they, they, they run as I write them. Yeah. And the artists interpret them. Okay. But so, again, that was a question we had lined up for later, but about the editorial control, how much oversight they have. So basically it's... I mean, your experience anyway, whether, whether they've liked your stories, is that they are looking at your, um, your overviews and then almost rubber stamping it sort of thing. Yeah, uh, they like the ideas. You know, uh, I remember Brendan saying, you know, the stories are great. Keep doing what you're doing. You know, keep coming. And uh, you're making my job easy. Just keep doing it, you know. So, yeah, it kind of it runs with no interference. Uh, really, but I, you know, um, I mean, I feel confident if I do come up with something that shouldn't run, I think Ev- Evelyn's going to catch that. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, she's, uh, she's watching. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> you know. So Evelyn's your most recent editor there at, uh, at KFS. So was it Jay, Brendan, Evelyn that's just in those three? Correct. And, and uh, uh, King Features ended up buying uh, Reed Brennan Media in Florida. And Evelyn was with Reed Brennan. I believe. Um, so instead of being, she used to uh, work for King as a contractor through Reboot. Now she's a features employee after the series. Okay. And I think it, it might have been something you said just before we started recording. She's the first Phantom fan um, or, uh, editor that you feel like you've worked with. Yeah, I mean, the first that uh, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, not that, not that Jay or Brendan were were uninterested in the Phantom. I don't mean to say that. But I, I do think that Evelyn is a fan. I, I yeah. definitely get that, I get that vibe from her. So. Do, you think that, do you think that makes your job easier or harder, or do you think it brings a better <laughs> product? Well, I, I want her to be happy with what I'm doing. Uh, it, it probably, uh, I'm a little more conscious of it. I Probably. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, I think she's happy with everything, and I, uh, I hope she continues to be. Yeah. And, and uh, having a fan, I guess, have a look at it in that sense, um, makes, makes sure that you stick closer to, um, uh, to Lee Falk's canon, to Lee, to Lee Falk's law as well. She'll, she'll have ideas about that herself, I suppose. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've made, uh, I'm waiting for a story idea from Evelyn. Uh, I've, I've made that offer to every editor. It's like, throw a one-liner at me, something that you really want to see. Uh, and I, I've never had him take me up on it. Uh, oh, I've also done that with the artists. So far, I haven't uh, had any feedback from Mike or Jeff on that. Uh, but Paul Ryan would occasionally, uh, if I kept after him, he'd send me a one-liner. And uh, like... This was his idea. Uh, he he uh, sent me an email one day and said, uh, what if someone tried to take over the leadership of the Bandar tribe? Oh, okay. Period. And so I wrote a story based, uh, based on that, you know, starting from that germ of an idea. And yeah. I, I, I make that... Uh, uh, I make that offer to them not because I'm out of ideas. I mean, to the contrary, that the ideas like fall out of the sky every day and hit you in the head. But uh, it's because I really want to engage the artists. Yeah, here's something they really want to want to draw. Well, when I think it was Jeff uh, Weigel, he made mention that you give him that offer as well, and he said that. Um, the Mandrake crossovers was Terry's idea, is that correct? For memory? Yes, yes, that is correct. I'd forgotten that. But uh, uh, Terry was a great Mandrake fan. Mm. And he said, get Mandrake in here. So we had that Sunday story of the uh, the cruise. Yeah. yeah. I, I, that was a good, fun story. I really liked that one. I think I've even got a um, an original Sunday from um, Terry from that uh, story as well. Ah, uh-huh. that's that's great. Yeah. Um. So, do you have like a couple of favorite stories? So I'll I'll just a couple of the ones that really that I really enjoyed was the um, terror in Malatwan, which was you and Nolan. 
Um, the the Mandrake's Bon Voyage, and then the the Diana um, the Diana's Death story as well. Do you have um, any that kind of stand out to you? You know, I I always it's always my favorite is always the story I'm working on, really. <laughs> Uh, because I always think it's the last story I'll write. Uh, you know, like taking nothing for granted. Like, you know, the, the piano falls off the, uh, off the hoist on the 12th floor, and uh, that's the end of your writing The Phantom, you know, that type of thing. Uh, so, you know, I really like uh, A Reckoning with the Nomad. I think people are going to be surprised at that. And I kind of... You know, I almost couldn't stop writing The Rat Must Die, the one that, that yeah. Jeff is working on. Yeah. Uh, it kind of turned into two stories in one. You know, the, the first half of it was showing how the Phantom gets in and out of Boomsby Prison. And then the, the rest of it is they're finally launched on this mission. Uh, and that was one... That was also a, uh, a script that I called back after sending him the rest of it because I wasn't really happy with the, the way I had ended it. Yeah. And it, it kept bugging me and bugging me. And I, I finally sent Evelyn a note and Jeff, copied Jeff on it, and said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewrite that ending. So, uh, you know, look for, a new, look for a new version of the script, an amended version in a week or so. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm. Those are the stories I'm into. Is the ones that are right in front of me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Do you really um, this reckoning with the nomad? You, you seem to really enjoy going back and um, having those villains that uh, reappear in, in multiple stories. The Python was in a, a whole bunch of stories before he's well, he's out of the picture for the moment, but uh, it, he's not in a never can come back sort of situation. Um, right. I'd love to see Sahara come back again. Um, the Nomad now, um, you have a lot of fun with those recurring villains? Oh, sure. I mean, there are two, uh, you know, the uh, the Python was too good a villain to kill off, but and I definitely got flack when he didn't die at the end of that that big five-part story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, and it was funny because some of it was unhinged. You know, there was a fellow who used to write to me uh, from Connecticut who'd been reading The Phantom forever. And uh, <laughs> uh, he, like, couldn't believe it that Jatu wasn't, you know, the Phantom didn't just, like, murder him <laughs> in the prison. <laughs> and, you know, my response was, well, you've been reading this for 60 years. I mean, uh, you've kind of caught on that the Phantom doesn't really do, you know, official killings, right? Uh, but it was uh, the... Chatu was so evil that he needed to die. That's the way this reader felt. Mm. He really was. He really was. He's um, probably one of the the better villains of the Phantom that that we've got. He's because he matches the Phantom physically and mentally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're they're all pretty cunning. Um, the same with Eric Sahara. Um, so. Yeah, you kind of hate to do away with them. Uh, I mean, some at some point, Chatu will get out of that cage he's in in one Basie Land, and um, 
you know, maybe the fan, maybe they're, you know, who knows what the phantom will think about that because he's had opportunities to dispatch this guy. His, his code really doesn't allow him to do that unless his life is in danger or some other innocent life. Um, I mean, he say the phantom saved Chatu from uh, dying of Ebola in the jungle. Uh, he's trying to weaponize Ebola that he was extracting from some uh, uh, bats. Remember that story? Yep. Yep. And uh, you know, the phantom goes through goes to extraordinary lengths to save Chatu's life. <laughs> Chatu goes on to blow up the uh, UN building in Mawatan and disappeared Diana into uh, Gravelines prison in Rhodia. So, sort of like no good deed goes unpunished, you know. Um, uh, so, yeah, so I don't know what's next. Uh, well, I do know what's next for, you know, <laughs> I don't know what's next for Chatu yet. Uh, what about um, what about bringing back some of, you already mentioned um, a conversation with Alf Granberg about um, revisiting some old stories. What about bringing back some of the, the classic phantom villains? I mean, I think Sing Brotherhood's only been in two or three uh, stories, for instance. Is there any thoughts of, of bringing them into the, the modern stories? Yeah, well, and uh, Hydra, right? Hydra was another yeah, one. Yeah, Hydra was a good one. Yeah, I mean, I think that's all fair game. Uh, I, I don't think those were any of the ones that Wolf suggested. <laughs> uh, you know, what was the... Uh, Jim Shepard once said... You should bring back Mr. Hogg. Yeah. And Mr. Hogg, I never got Mr. Hogg. I kind of thought, well, depending on your point of view, he was either a uh, tribute to or a ripoff of a Dick Tracy type villain, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But was Mr. Hogg big in Australia? Was he like a favorite villain or something? Yeah. Um, he was. Yeah. yeah. I think he was in the second or third ever through comic um, you know back in the back in the 30s and he's, there's a really classic cover from that early comic and I think that really solidified him in the Australian mindset um, it, it would be difficult I think to bring him back for a, a sequel maybe a prequel I don't know but um, that's a that's a gangster era type um, type character and bringing him into 2020 or you know thereabouts would be, it would be a tough call I think he just kind of uh I, I have to go back and read some of those stories, but he was—he just kind of would like uh, emit unpleasant noises and things like that. Didn't he? He was, uh... Yeah, yeah, messy. <laughs> yeah, he was definitely a gangster type of villain. Yeah. So uh, look, whether it uh, vultures, Hydra, the Sing pirates, uh, I think we'd love to see, and I think that that makes a bit of a connection too, and, and um, brings the whole eighty-year history of the Phantom together, um, which I think fans really like to see. But there's a lot of pride in the fact that it's such an old character uh, and an old strip, um, and um, yeah, I think tying those sorts of things together are, are what a lot of readers enjoy seeing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, and one of the things that you you talked about with Mike, um, you know, the 82-year continuity and all, uh, and how realistic is that to, uh, you know, for this Phantom to have been around that long? I really, you know, it really doesn't bother me very much. It, it's a little, it's a little tricky on some uh, some stories, like the Aeronaut. I don't know if you remember that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
You know, that's where the phantom is. He's kind of representing himself as having, as his his father and his grandfather. Now you can't really use those terms because we're talking about things that happened in World War One, and here he is. You know, it's an entirely new century. Uh, so, you know, I kind of wrote around that problem simply by referring to those previous phantoms as uh, the 19th phantom, the 20th phantom. You know, you can kind of you can kind of skirt around that. Um, but, you know, the continuity, I think, when I go back and look at the old, um, you know, Moore or McCoy uh, stories, it's sort of like that's an artifact of our phantom set in that particular time. I'm not really... I'm not really bothered uh, by that. So that's a long way of saying that it makes it, it makes eminently good sense to to bring those old uh, elements of the Falk universe forward. Because I mean, it's all to me, it's all of a piece. Mm. No. So would would I be fair in saying, and this is a a question that a couple of the people have. Or ask that we will not see the 22nd Phantom, that it will stay the 21st? Uh, well. You did tease us with this in uh, Curse yeah, of Yeah, the Cur- <laughs> Curse of Old Man Moz, a lot of fans, uh, we even did a whole podcast on like, the first couple of stories of it, uh, first couple of uh, panels of the story, and then... Um, a lot of people started picking up reading the comic every day because they wanted to be there when the 21st Phantom died and it was being passed over the 22nd. So, but yeah. from what you were saying, it kind of sounds like that the 21st Phantom was here to live as, for as long as you're correct. Well, I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll say this. <laughs> I, I, I know how he dies, right? Because the uh, when you live with these characters for... Uh, uh, and not just the phantom character. I mean, even on uh, scripts, uh, screenplays that I've been writing on for 20 or 30 years, you know, and revising. And these characters really do speak to you. And it's it, it's kind of difficult to explain. I mean, another writer would instantly know what I mean. The, you know, uh, you'll work on a character for years and years, and you find yourself thinking, you know, I wish this guy didn't think that way. I wish this guy didn't say that. Uh, you know, I wish he were a little wiser, a little smarter. You know, but but the character really does tell you uh, what their nature is, what they're going to do. And so <laughs> sort of having the wide lens on the Phantom canon, I guess I, I, I think I know how he dies. But... King Features will never let me kill him off. That's my <laughs> opinion. Yeah, I mean, I've never, uh, I've never discussed that with Evelyn. I mean, she might surprise me completely. Mm. Uh, but my guess is that it'll be a bold move. The media business is so rocky and so uncertain. Uh, they're going to want to keep with what works. Um, yeah. And I can case that. It's time to kill him off, but I think it would be a really hard sell. Um, you know, I don't mind making that case and seeing what they say, but I mean, in my own mind, I I, I know where he dies, how he dies, why he dies, and you know, I think he's. This will just sound strange to you, but 
He doesn't come home to the Skull Cave. His body is the first to not be in the crypt. And uh, maybe he's buried under another name. Uh, but it's something that I'm always thinking of. And you know what? Now that we're talking about it now, I will wake up at 3 in the morning and get up and write some notes on it, I'm sure. <laughs> it's just well, it's the way it happens. Your subconscious is always working. I mean, the the storyline with um, with Kit Jr. And, and Heloise off at university now, they're at the age that Phantom 21 was when he um, took over. So uh, that, I guess that's part of where the fans are coming from is we're getting to a pointy end with, the, with those kids just about ready to, to take up the mantle. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that we would have to enter a, a, a period where time really slows down uh, in order for him to survive. But, uh, you know, the, the twins are 15 now, uh, so maybe there's a little bit of room for them to, to grow a bit. Um, they've just left home. Um, but, yeah, if the kids were in their 20s, right, I think it would be, it would be time. And I... Hope I could. Um, I mean, maybe it won't be on my watch, but I, I, I hope I could do him uh, justice with uh, the way the way uh, he he comes to an end. But and actually, uh, I maybe what's maybe what's kind of developing in the back of my head now is that if his body doesn't come home to the Skull Cave, he's still in the strip. He's still kind of a player, you know. Um, so, uh, is that if if this because the the Egmont famously did the twenty second Phantom story last year, which is you, you would have read that I'm sure. With the Phantom has just not come home. Um, is that a way that you would look to tie the stories in together? Are you mindful about what Egmont are doing when you consider what you're doing? Or no, I am completely out of the Egmont loop, and I I don't know this story. <laughs> so okay. there you go. Okay. I will very occasionally uh, get an Egmont comic in the mail, and I don't know why. You know, I'm clearly not on their mailing list anymore and haven't been for many years. But uh, once or twice a year, one of them will arrive here, and it's... Uh, one of your stories be in it, or just... Uh, occasionally they're mine, but uh, often they're not. And so they're in <laughs> Swedish, I can't read them. <laughs> The only way I could read them was uh, when Fru republished the Egmont stories, you know. And Do you so, get many Fru comics? Uh, well, occasionally. I did get the, the Christmas edition, uh, yeah. where I think it had three of my stories in it. And that, that, was, a, that was fun. Yeah. Because uh, uh, I remember sending you some of the Johnny Hotwire stories, and I think from memory you said that was the first time you ever saw one of your own stories in English. Uh, when would that have been? Oh, this uh, was probably about five years ago. Okay, I I do remember the Johnny Hotwire stories. I'm not sure that would have been the first time I, I saw them. Okay. Uh, yep, that was but uh, well, maybe it was the first time I saw the Hotwire story. Yeah. Uh, maybe that particular one. I I don't really recall. But you know, this is what I mean—that I'm a terrible collector. All the stuff that I it is in a, it's in a box in a dry loft in a shed outside and probably when I'm you know haunting my urn someone will go through the shed and find all this stuff <laughs> so, 
Yeah, so I just wanted to go back to when you were saying about how the Twins are 15 now. So you raise a, there's a great, you raise a great point. Like, the Twins were born in, what, 79? There was a story in 1987 called The Twins' Eighth Birthday. So in that period of time, there was actually eight real years and eight comic years. And now from 87 to where we are now, which is, how many years is that? Where's the maths teacher? 29 years. Yeah, so 30 years. <laughs> he's, they've aged seven years. So it's, it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's an interesting way of, um, <laughs> just, yeah, it's interesting. They're frozen in time at, at, <laughs> at different uh, Well, kind of like in a family circus, you know, Jeffy was, you know, five for 40 years or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you you are you're entirely correct that uh, you know the, the the transition will happen at some point. I don't know if it'll happen on my watch. Now, certainly, if it, it probably won't, if if uh, Mike Manley's guess is correct, yeah, he, he thinks that we all turn into pumpkins in ten years. <laughs> so, <laughs> do you feel what uh, are you that comment? No, I, I, I'm kind of optimistic about it only because I think, you know, you look at how many, I, I think good stuff survives. Uh, yeah. You look at how many young kids really appreciate music from the 60s and the 70s. Um, I mean, my youngest daughter, who is, uh, uh-oh, what is she, 31? <laughs> uh, she's so into Frank Sinatra, you know from the 40s and the 50s. And uh, so, you know, I mean, you know, the Phantom is different from every other character out there. And uh, I, I I remain hopeful that he can find uh, kind of a new fan base. Now, I don't, I don't know what the delivery system will be. Mike might be completely uh, correct in that, you know, newspaper syndication as a vehicle will end, and maybe there won't be enough web presence to uh, to support the strip. Um, but again, all of that uncertainty is the reason why I always <laughs> I always approach the stories I'm writing as the last ones I'll ever do, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, that's probably a good philosophy to have. Uh, part of, another one of the questions that we got sent in, um, I guess, speaks to uh, a statement that you made um, in the interview that you, or the reply, that the interview that we did as a written thing last year with you. Um, and I think you said at the time that the, the, the newspaper strip was the Phantom Cannon. Um, and Luke Very has asked us to, to ask you, is the newspaper strip law? Um, do you think that, um, you know, that is the one true Phantom? Um, if, if, you know, the 21st Phantom was to die in the newspaper strip, would that mean that he, uh, that, that's what has happened now and needs to follow on in other versions? Um, where, where do you stand on that sort of question? Well, no, it's kind of uh, uh, yes and no because the I think yes, it, it, the newspaper is the is the the Phantom Universe, uh, but I think if he died in the newspaper, he could um, very well continue uh, in you know Norway and uh, in Sweden wherever. Yeah, I mean, I think readers can uh, they can handle that. You know, they can definitely. Um, you know, give readers, uh, I give them a lot of credit in that they can keep one universe separate from another. You know, in a, I mean, it, 
Wouldn't it be interesting if they liked both universes and bought both stories, you know, uh, and so, you know, supported the work that way. Yeah. I don't know. I, I do think that, you know, a lot of, um, and this is obvious, I guess, but for a lot of people that have, you know, are my age or older. Yeah. I think they're done with the strip as soon as the 21st Phantom dies. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. And that would make King features really nervous. Uh, I mean, because the only thing that really kind of saves us now is when they try to cancel the strip, the newspaper editors are bombarded by, you know, readers saying, don't do this. Now, if we kill the Phantom and readers start, the same readers start saying, yes, please cancel the Phantom strip. Uh, <laughs> we're out of business. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So keeping track of the the eighty two and a bit years um, old Phantom stories must be a, a tricky business. Uh, we we talked to artists about um, references that they've got. So Barry told us about filing cabinets of pictures that he used, and um, um, Jeff and and Mike have said that you know Google Images is their best friend and that sort of thing. Um, what sort of reference list or character list, old jungle saying list um, do you have so that you know that what you're doing? Can sort of dovetails into what's been done before. Yeah, well, you know, a, a lot of uh, a lot of that research was done by Ulf, and uh, so the, the the old jungle sayings and uh, the birth and death dates of the various phantoms. That's all from uh, that's all um, consistent across both universes. Uh, as far as the old strips themselves. Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I just noticed maybe a few weeks ago that there's um, a site that I'm unfamiliar with where they're saying you can download all of the originals in digital form. I've got them on CD, and they're really clunky to try to navigate. I really haven't found a good program that enables me to read those easily. Um, so I've got to look into this other place, a little... Uh, a little reluctant to just start downloading zip files from the site yeah, that yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but I would definitely, um, I would definitely like to have everything in, from day one in digital form. Uh, the only reason I had the CDs that was because of the late Ed Rhodes, oh, who uh, you know was uh, a great friend of Pete Klaus, uh, and I, I, I got familiar with both of those guys. Um, at the at the very same time, yeah, yeah. through Ulf, if I remember correctly, and um, yeah, it was actually Ed Rhodes who sent me all these CDs. I mean, there there wasn't any support from King Features on this, <laughs> so yeah, um, so it, it enabled me to refresh my uh, childhood memories of these strips yeah. I had read. Well, we've I've got copies of probably about 80% of the dailies and I think all of the Sundays. So um, after the podcast or something like that, I can probably um, help sending them through or something like that if needed. That would be wonderful. Yeah, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, references are, are tough to come by. And, of course, they're not catalogued, so it's hit or miss. Like you may uh, be looking at an old story and say, here's... Uh, here's an early reference to Boomsby Prison. This is what the architecture looks like. And, um, you know, those things are invaluable. I kind of catalog them as I, as I find them. So, 
Yeah, by all means. Yeah, that was, uh, that was uh, something I thought oh, you might know. Hermes Press are currently reproducing the Avon novels from the seventies, and I just recently read the second one, uh, which was the Slave Market of Macar. Um, right. That the, the characters escape the prison, um, but they take a different path to what the rat has taken um, just recently. <laughs> um, is that would, <laughs> is is. Uh, I don't know. Is there two tunnels that come out of the prison? Is there, or <laughs> this one is in, entirely separate? Yeah. It is. <laughs> you uh, right. You, you you. It's counterintuitive. Uh, I mean, it, you know, it, it makes too much sense to walk down into the the bowels of this old colonial citadel to get out of it. So, uh, it, you know, if you take this other route and walk up, it's completely counterintuitive. Uh, no one knows that there's this hollow, there's a wall within a wall in the tower and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 one, of the, one of the charms of the strip for me was always that the Phantom is familiar with secret places. <laughs> and it just was another secret place uh, but to, uh, you know, mystify people and kind of uphold the, uh, the myth. Yeah. So. Well, he famously bricked the other one up anyway. So uh, this other, <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, what what sort of a challenge is it for you to take? We, we've talked about the '30s and '40s and characters that sort of are stuck there in a sense, like like you, Mister Hogs. Um, to take a classic pulp character like that into a modern world, I mean, um, the Phantom used to have to climb a telegraph pole and tap into a, a, a wire to to ring the. Um, Jungle Patrol on the X-Band or whatever. Um, now there's the potential of smartphones and, and Skype and that sort of thing. Um, how challenging is it to, to take a character through such a rapidly changing technological world? Yeah, you know, it's... I mean, kids... Nowadays, if there's five years in age between kids, they don't even know each other's devices or apps. You know, so it's, it's changing so quickly. Uh, but, yeah, I mean... Ki- you know, readers aren't going to buy the Phantom climbing a pole with a, a plug-in handset. Uh, and I, I love those old images, you know, because I grew up with them. Um, so, you know, I haven't figured out whether he carries a phone or he uh, kind of takes advantage. Like if he, you know, knocks somebody out, he uses their phone to call the Jungle Patrol. But, yeah, we've shown him using them. And it's kind of a... I think it was in one of the Python stories that Paul drew. We kind of did a, a kind of a wink at that where uh, the Phantom was calling someone on a satellite phone. And in the last panel, he kind of, when the call is concluded, he takes the phone down and he kind of, he looks at it and he says, I've got to get one of these. You know? <laughs> <laughs> these things are handy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but at uh, the same time, he doesn't have a utility belt to put it in, or uh, was he going to tuck it into his boot? Or <laughs> that's the, that's a problem. Yeah, I don't know what to do about that. Uh, but uh, we've kind of been slowly showing him using uh, newer technology. And well, you know, I, mean, he's, a, I think in a couple, he even had Skype. He does some video chats and stuff like that. So he's probably got Skype. Right. Uh, I didn't have that until yesterday. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're catching up to the Phantom now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's, uh, you know, up on Walker's table. He's got a uh, satellite receiver, and he's got, 
He's apparently got a generator up there, and uh, so he can stay in touch. Um, so yeah, we're going to try to try to modernize them and not lose, you know, any of the um, sort of happy, you know, gauzy edges around the the universe too. Well, we still want so. to see jungle drums as the main form of communication <laughs> between tribes and that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, uh, the monkey mail. I don't know what to do with the monkey mail, yeah. you know, but I always love that. Yeah. But plausible for, what was it, Chi-Chi, the monkey, to be carrying <laughs> out yeah. right, <laughs> through the jungle. But, you know, they could have, you know, you could have a uh, Russian cyber attack on the net in Bangala and maybe uh, that we go back to the monkey mail. You know, yep. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. That's, that's a, it's an interesting challenge that, um, like you say, is completely different five years from now again and 10 years from now, um, depending on what's available. Yeah. So, so we've, <laughs> we, we briefly talked about it at the beginning. Um, could we, go into some discussions regarding the um, uh, well I guess the sensational um, resignation letter that we we saw from you in 2017 and how after a break of a couple of months you came back on board with the contract and that could we touch upon that? Sure uh... it, it took I think it took everyone for a shock when that happened um, and a lot of people were saying, well, that's it, that's the fan, I'm all done and dusted, um, we're never going to see him again in the newspaper. Um, you know, we had people starting wearing black clothing and burning the candles and, <laughs> and you know, going to church for the first time in a while. And uh, it, you really rocked a lot of people's um, uh, world with that, with that uh, article. Well, I'm, you know, I'm glad that that... Uh I mean, I, I don't think that's what would have happened. I think they would have replaced me in a heartbeat. Um, <laughs> life would have gone on, you know. Uh, but I, I think it was uh, the problem for them was I walked away with um, the copyrights to everything I'd written. You know, and that was a serious problem. I mean, that was a, that was a gap in the chain of title to the phantom character. I mean, that's... Um, and I didn't want to do that, you know. I, I mean, basically, I had uh, I had worked for 17 years without a without a written agreement, uh, you know. And I think it was because, I mean, you know, maybe it was because Jay Kennedy was running it all by remote control through Ulf. You know, Ulf certainly wouldn't care about whether King Features has contracts in place. He was editing copy and getting it into the paper. Um, but that was an oversight on their part, and it, it came up. You know, it, it would, that issue would crop up every five or six years. You know, someone would say, "Hey, you don't have a contract," and I say, "That is correct." Uh, and they say, "Well, we got to get you under contract." And I'd say, "Well, that's okay. We can do that." And uh, you'll get a call from the lawyer. And on, I think one occasion, someone actually did call and ask me a bunch of questions. And then that just went away. And five years later, someone said, you know, hey, you're not under contract. <laughs> you know, I mean, all media companies are like this. This is not to knock King Features, you know, because, I, I mean, I've, I've worked for media companies my whole adult life. It's all chaos. You know, <laughs> people talk about the people who don't know how media works 
talk about all oh, the media is pulling all these strings and it's doing this and there's this conspiracy. It's like, no, they're trying to get through the day. <laughs> you, know? yeah. uh, you don't understand. It's just complete chaos. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's enormous amounts of information moving through these companies every day, and they're just trying to, you know, meet deadlines and uh, bookkeeping issues always fall by the wayside. Uh, so anyway, finally, the long and short of it is, 17 years into my no contract status, uh, they say we got to get you under contract. So I said that's 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 fine. Perfectly happy to do that. Uh, but the, it was backdated for 17 years. So it was kind of a do-over, you know. And, in, and I just said, I'm not going to sign this. And they said, well, you are if you want to keep writing The Phantom. And I said, uh, you know, we can have that discussion, you know. Uh, so, uh, you know, I ended up having to get a lawyer to represent me and uh, someone who specialized in intellectual property law. Um, and his... Oh, yeah. The backdate contract, was that basically saying that all the characters you created was their property, you didn't own it, and, and, and stuff yes. like that? Yep. Yeah, correct. And, uh, you know, I mean, I took the position that these are all new characters, you know, uh, if you're going to license uh, or um, if you're going to sell options to movie producers and they can take characters that I created and, and use them in a phantom movie, you know, I think it's fair that I, you know, get a free ticket to the movie or something. You know, yeah. I, mean, I, should get I would like a popcorn and a soda or something. Uh, and, you know, uh, you know, like I say, these, and it's not a knock on King features because they are of a kind, you know, they, all these companies run this way is that the, the, you know, where the rubber meets the road, like the, 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 the grunts, the talent, they are last in line for chow, you know? And, uh, so, you know, I took the position that we have to have um, uh, the deal we offered was uh, just help me with my legal fees a little bit at this point. And if you make money down the road on some big movie, I would like to be cut in for a tiny share of that. And that that would not fly. So uh, I walked, you know, and they were they were floored by that. I do know that because they. <laughs> They called, uh, their lawyer called my lawyer and said, okay, so uh, what do we do now? And he said, we don't do anything. The guy quit. Uh, why are you calling me, you know? And they said, no, no, really. How do we proceed? Right. And so they, they uh, clearly didn't expect that. Uh, and I, they did hire outside counsel at that point. And I, my theory, nothing to go on but just sort of looking at the, the travel on the whole thing from, like, you know, helicopter altitude. My theory was the, the outside counsel said, there's a hole in the title to this character now. And yeah. if the guy walks away with this, I mean, uh, that's a problem, you know, if you're going to sell movie options. Um, and, you know, the movie options are really valuable. There was a, I don't know if you knew this, but one of the, <laughs> Uh, one of the options they sold on a Popeye movie that never happened became public. It turned up in like, um, remember when the North Koreans hacked Sony and, yeah. and all that stuff came out through WikiLeaks? Yeah. Well, that option is online. That's 
it's instructive reading. Uh, it's probably 85 or 90 pages long, but it's worth reading. Um, there's millions and millions of dollars in this, you know, uh, if a movie gets made. And there's quite a lot of money up front if it doesn't. Um, so I was asking for a really, for, you know, a really, uh, like, petty change. Yeah. Um, on a deal like that if they used characters I created. Um, but I don't think anyone at King Features ever had a deal like that. Really? Yeah. Uh, and then what I kept hearing was, this is the contract that everybody signs. And my position was, that's fine. Everybody can do what they like. It's a free country. Uh, but, you know, I'm not going to sign that deal. Uh, uh, but, you know, it all got, it all got settled uh, pretty amicably, I, I guess. I mean, I've never heard anyone say anything to the contrary. I mean, they, you know, I, I kind of expected them to uh, fire me after I signed the contract because they're, they can do that. Yeah. And my, when I discussed that, I said, yeah, I'm happy to, I'm happy to sign this, but I think I get my four weeks notice, like after, you know, before the ink is dry. <laughs> and uh, that didn't happen. And, uh, you know, I, I had a call from Evelyn and she's, her attitude is, you know, I'm delighted that you're back and let's do good stories and, uh, you know, we'll go forward. So, oh, that's good. so you, you have maintained or, or, or kept ownership of those characters now or, or have you signed off for the, for the penny change agreement? Is that the, is that the deal? Yeah, no, no. They, uh, they really needed to make the chain of title whole. So I basically sold those rights. Yep. And... Uh, not for not for a fortune, like I don't have a, a chauffeur now or a butler. Or <laughs> uh, but it was uh, it was a sum that I felt reflected value, and uh, you know I was able to pay the, uh, the the legal fees and come out of it with a little money and uh, and 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 a little self respect. You know that was the thing. I I said you know I, I'm I'm not you know, a kid who's trying to work for a byline here. Uh, you know, you, you had to catch me like 40 years ago for that. Uh, yeah. Uh, but um, I thought everybody, I thought it was a good deal all around. And uh, I met a really valuable lawyer in New York. So <laughs> uh, who uh, able to help me on film projects and things like that. And that's, uh, that's wonderful. I guess like what you said, it, Seeing it's it's come back to the fans' point of view. It's come back seamlessly. Um, you know, your writing stories are still the same high quality. There was no, you know, gap or or, or anything like that. Um, you know, stories just continue to run. Um, from a fans' point of view, it did run quite smoothly, and I guess that's where we are lucky that we were so far ahead in the beginning. Well, it was pretty close at the end because we, we burned seven or eight months uh, going through this. So I think when I signed, um, someone needed copy. I don't think it was Mike. I think it was Jeff. It was Jeff, yeah. I think Jeff was out of copy. Yeah. Uh, and I hadn't written any, so I had to sit down and just write a few weeks to get them started. <laughs> so, uh, so it was cutting it close, but... Um, you know, d deadlines are never a problem. Um, you know, coming from a newspaper tradition, you you sent, you don't meet you don't miss deadlines. Yeah. 
you, you have zero credibility if you miss deadlines. And, um, if you're going to miss a deadline, you better be literally dead somewhere. <laughs> yeah. It works in the newspaper business. Uh, yeah, all um, falling off your bike and breaking your leg as well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, the, the Swedes bailed me out on that one. I was, I, was, I was pretty bashed up for a while and um, up on the orthopedic ward for 10 days and then a slow recovery and then a follow-up surgery and all that sort of thing. Um, but I bought a new motorcycle from the hospital. Because <laughs> <laughs> the other one was... Delighted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My wife was in Florida and she didn't even know I'd been in an accident at that point. Uh, <laughs> She was on a girl's vacation with her mom and a couple of her sisters. Uh, and um, it was a very strange, uh, strange thing. But I just decided that this one reckless driver I had run into was not going to deny me the, the pleasure of riding a motorcycle again. So uh, over the phone, I bought a, a brand new Harley Road King. And uh, th these were in the days where the bikes were in such demand, you had to queue up to get one. And they deliver it uh, on the anniversary, on the one-year anniversary of my wreck. Oh, wow. <laughs> they, they didn't deliver it, actually. That's when I got the call to come pick your bike up. I just had a follow-up surgery. So I've, my right leg was, like, kind of just ruined in a stick, you know, because it's been operating on again and not... Hadn't been able to move it. And when I, I do remember when I went to pick it up, uh, pick up the bike, the salesman said, he took one look at me, he said, let me get back in the building before you ride out of here. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to witness the accident. Uh, and sure enough, I slid it across an intersection four miles later. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get out of the way of a speeding ambulance. And I really, I really wasn't physically able to ride. Um, so uh, that's what I mean about like being rough on stuff. Yeah. Like uh, four miles on this twenty thousand dollar motorcycle, like I've it. already cracked the chrome off the crash bars. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, I couldn't lift the bike up, uh, but two guys jumped out of a pickup truck and kind of shoved me back up on my wheels, and I said thanks, and uh, took off. So. Yeah. So, <laughs> so for, I guess for those who have read your blog, they will know that you are a bit of a a, a motorbike um, enthusiast. Um, so, is is that where the the whole Johnny Hotwire situation storyline came from? Like the, those two those two stories? Was it just the love of the bikes? And, yeah, know, I think so. the fans on a Harley. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, uh, artists hate to draw motorcycles. They're they're really time consuming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so now the next time I get run over, it will be by an artist that I've uh, <laughs> sent the draw. Think it was, yeah, I think it was Hans Lindell who did the Johnny Hotwire storyline. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So is so, that one of the things that Mike and Jeff uh, requested not to draw? You know, I haven't uh, I haven't heard that yet. I don't think I've ever uh, run the idea by Mike or Jeff. Uh, but Jeff will be drawing a B-29 bomber in the next story. 
Uh, and he's into it. Uh, I mean, he told me it's not his favorite thing to draw machines, but he immediately went out and bought a uh, model of the plane. And it's, okay, wow. it's built so he can see it from all angles. And uh, so he's, uh, you know, he's game. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, sorry, I was just going to ask, the, the editorial um, element, element, does she give you kind of like direction of where she wants to go, or is it entirely up to you if she just kind of steers occasionally? Uh, you know, mainly what she does is uh, she makes sure where the, the story makes sense to the readers. You know, she's looking at it from the reader's point of view, uh, and she'll catch errors in, well, even the lettering and that sort of thing. Um, you know, sometimes I will, I'll see the proofs, and they look good to me, and when I see them again, I'll, I'll see things that she spotted and have been, have been changed or corrected. Yeah, so she's watching, and it's good to, you really... Everybody needs an editor. You really do need uh, another set of eyes uh, because sometimes you you looked at something so long you don't even see it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. That's certainly something I would say to my uh, students when they're writing: is you know what you meant to write, so you see it there even if it's not there. Um, and and uh, like you say, that second set of eyes is uh, always going to be a handy pickup. The the brain is very good at filling in gaps in copy. And you'll read things that really aren't aren't there, but uh, a good editor will save you every time. I'm all for it. Now, you mentioned before, uh, and you've sort of the uh, about the idea of a phantom movie. Do you think that uh, you'll see a phantom movie in? Will, will will that come to fruition in the next five ten years? Is there possibilities? Do you think? Uh, you know, I. I guess I'm not too optimistic about that. Um, if the Phantom were better known in the States, then I, I think I'd feel better about the chances. But, um, I mean, you look at the movie they did make, and it's pretty clear that no one really wanted to follow the, 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 the original concept. You know, they took such liberties with the universe. Um, but yeah, I would I would love the opportunity to write it and to be true to the Falk universe in it and uh, to um, not aim it at little kids. You know, I think they were mainly trying to sell like action figures in Happy Meals and things like that, uh, which is kind of a uh, maybe it's a reality uh, and a fact of life in the world of movie financing. You know, and for me as a writer, it's easy for me to disregard all that. And just say, no, yeah. this is the story. I don't care about cost. <laughs> you know, well, uh, even there with, like you said, I agree. I, th I think it was pitched at kids, but then there was still some strange choices made in that Quill swears, for instance. Um, he says shit or something like that pretty early in the piece. And when I watched that with my six-year-old, my wife looked at me and said, well, you know, this isn't appropriate. The rest of the movie is, but that's an odd dialogue choice. Well, and also the thing with the guy who gets the knife blades out of the microscope, yeah, I mean that's pretty, uh, you know, hardcore violence. And uh, for a, um, I can't really recall whether I don't think we actually saw that happen, but we certainly knew it had happened. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I don't think I'd want my 
six-year-old <laughs> no. seeing that. No, no. It may not have been my father of the year moment. <laughs> Although it was, because you're trying to get your, trying to get your six-year-old into the family. <laughs> I had, my heart was in the right place. <laughs> you know, that's always a question about uh, violence in the Phantom strip. Um, I mean, you know, we all know what Falk felt about that. Um, in this day and age, is it, can, is it realistic at all for the Phantom to be shooting uh, the guns out of people's hands, you know, especially with like an M1911? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, so uh, there's actually something coming up in the Reckoning script, the one that Mike's working on, where we're trying to, we're trying to deal with violence on two different levels. And I, I, I hope it works. Um, I don't. I don't think he's drawing that week right now, but it's probably he'll be drawing it next week. Uh, where we're trying to um, there, there are things happening where <clears throat> I would like the the little kids who read this to to miss it and for the adults to get it. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, you, you make a decision depending on what's on panel or off panel. You kind of make a mental decision on uh, is this covering fire or is he doing away with his the the, the heavily armed men who are threatening him? Uh, so I would like the adults to be able to read it one way and kids to kind of blithely think, oh, he's just you know he's shooting off his guns, so the other guys put their heads down and he can run away. Uh, yep. So I think you're, you're going to see a couple of scenes like that in the next couple of weeks. And um, it's a it's a tricky thing. Yeah, the violence aspect um, in a movie. I think you have a whole lot more running, you know, in a feature film. But in the strip that's going to be on the breakfast table, uh, try to be really careful about that. Is it also potentially a tricky time for a phantom movie? Um, you've talked about the idea of this, you know, the white savior in the in the African jungle and. Um, Black Panther's been so hugely popular and um, because of the, um, you know, the, the way that the racial relations are all um, taken care of there, is it a difficult time for the character of the Phantom to, to come out into a movie? Yeah, you know, it might be. I mean, what I keep trying to show in the strip is really how... Uh, He's he's so dependent on the these African people that he lives with. Yes, and he he's an African himself. I mean to say, he's um, you know so dependent on the on the tri the tribal peoples that he lives with. I mean, Babadan just saved his bacon. You know. Yes. Uh, uh, you know he's kind of uh, I mean he's so dependent on Goran to uh, doctor him when he needs it, and just to be his advisor. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's very clear that I, if you remember the story I referenced that was kind of Paul's idea, uh, where he yes. said, you know, what if, what if someone decided to challenge Goran for the leadership of the tribe? Uh, you know, the way, the way that was written, the, uh, the message that Kit and Heloise kept getting from their father is this is a Bandar matter because they wanted the phantom to get involved. And that was that theme that I was exploring there. 
you know, because they're so attached to Guran. I mean, Guran is another father figure to them. Yeah. And I think at one point it was Kit who said, we're Bandar. You know, we might as well be. We live with the Bandar. All our friends are Bandar, you know. And that was yeah. all a really conscious effort on my part to show how integrated, uh, well, not uh, integrated literally and figuratively, the, the the whites and blacks are in this in in the deep woods and uh you know kit was uh heloise was much more mature than kit kit was saying you know goran is the guy this is what's good for the tribe and if you you know if you the phantom speak for goran you know he's a shoe in uh, and the phantom is keep saying this is for the bandar to decide we're not we don't decide, we're not bandar so I do try to, I do think if a movie production uh, kind of continued along those lines, really trying to honor the, the, um, the status of, of the, uh, the, the Bengalan people, you know, I, I, I think it would be fine. Yeah. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll have a different opinion after I see what a, you know, after I see what a great job they did with Black Panther. I don't know. <laughs> well, I hate to go to theaters because I, uh, you know, I I end up I end up in fights with people in theaters, you know, because they're rude. <laughs> so uh, there was a guy who uh, I forget which movie it was we saw, and it was in a kind of a serious, like a drama where the place is quiet, and I hear someone uh, clipping their fingernails, you know. <laughs> In a packed theater, the person, you know, the, what a pig, you know. I mean, he's clipping his fingernails, and then you're kind of involved. You're trying to watch the movie and involuntarily counting the clicks. <laughs> and I'm thinking, all right, good. Okay, he's up to eight. Okay, nine, ten. Probably by thirty, he better be done. <laughs> you know, and and that, you know, then thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven. I finally stood up. And shouted into the darkness. I said, you know, like, Jesus Christ, are you cutting your toenails now? You know? And it stopped. <laughs> Might be best to wait for the movie to come out on DVD. <laughs> or Netflix. I've just noticed that, you know, the sun is setting here, so I'm I'm probably very shadowy. It looks like I'm in the deep woods here. <laughs> you can tell that we've been talking for a while. It's gone dark. <laughs> and it's gone light over my end. <laughs> That's a little better. <laughs> so, um, uh, well, uh, speaking of, I guess, um, uh, pe- uh, people from the peanut gallery... Um, do you do you read? Um, do you get a lot of fan mail? We we saw that uh, the fan mail from um, the the eight year old, ten year old Australian. Yeah. I thought that was that was sensational. Do you receive a lot of that sort of stuff? I'm still smiling from that. Uh, that came uh, in a very circuitous route. Uh, that that boy's mom found my blog and posted a comment on the blog, uh, and. Um, because she didn't have my email address. And I wrote back. I said, yeah. She said, can my eight-year-old son write you a letter? I said, yeah, I'd be delighted. Here's the address, and uh, I'd be thrilled. And uh, about a month passed, and I didn't hear back. And so I followed up and sent another one. I said, hey, I'm looking for the letter. (laughs) And uh, she had never gotten my original email. So I was 
said that I had followed up. And uh, that was delighted. I, uh, delightful. I'm still smiling. Uh, and I got so much mail on that post. And it's very strange because now I know everyone in the family. <laughs> like, I, uh, there's uh, some are in Australia, some are in South Africa, and I know everybody who's related to who and what they did and what their career was, and it's uh, it's wonderful. So, um, so now I've got more friends made through the Phantom. Um, and um, and what about some of the the less um, enthusiastic feedback? <laughs> I suppose um, when, yeah. whether it's on Comics Kingdom comments by, below the strip, this sort of thing. Um, do you, do you read those? Do you pay any attention to those? I I really don't. And I'll, I'll tell you a story about that. Um, well, I mean, it's probably I think it's probably because of my background in journalism, where you're in the public eye every morning. And if you're doing your job, someone always wants your head on a plate. And it's very often someone with influence in the community, maybe a, a judge or a, a, a lawyer who is a, you know, a, a kingmaker or, and, uh, or whatever, a politician, you know, and, and uh, so you need to really be, it makes you, um, it makes you careful about your craft. You know, because you're always in a position of needing to defend your work. Uh, and so I did 26 years of that. And uh, when <laughs> Comics Kingdom came about, I mean, I did initially check the, uh, you know, some of the comments. And, you know, what came to mind for me was um, uh, Marshall McLuhan. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the medium is the message. It's like this isn't. The comments column isn't about the phantom; it's about the comments column, yeah. and it's about uh, it's about you know people sort of being the class clown for a, a certain small group, you know, yeah. which I think is fine if they're entertained to do that. That's lovely, but uh, you know, nothing I read there is going to make me a better writer, and uh, yeah. so I I haven't checked in many years. But uh, but you know, one thing. <laughs> which is kind of, it's not funny, it's kind of sad, is that Paul Ryan was so sensitive to the criticism there. And uh, he just took it all to heart. And it, it weighed on him, you know? He's a very sensitive guy. Uh, and Paul, Paul was kind of like, God, he was kind of like a uh, hundred Catholic school kids I knew growing up just really afraid to be criticized, you know? Um, and I said, Paul, don't read that. Just don't. Uh, but it was like a car wreck. He just had to pause on his morning and look. And he would write these really, uh, on a couple of occasions, he would call certain criticisms to my attention. He would say, I'm going to write to this person, tell them this whole story. And I could not really bear to read his mail to these critics because it was like he was just so apologetic and solicitous yeah. good graces and uh, you know it wasn't uh, people don't you don't get paid enough anyway you certainly don't get paid to take abuse <laughs> you know and to me like I said with the journalism background it's like I, I don't I mean have at it I don't care what anybody says about me but uh, um it really bothered me. 
it really bothered Paul, and I, w I was sad about that for him that he didn't, uh, he couldn't. It was kind of like an OCD thing where he's like, I gotta check, you know. And, no, I think you're right when you say about the the comments being for the comment section, you know, and and people are being the class clown and looking to, um, you know, have a laugh and, and entertain each other. Um, yeah, far more than they actually uh, are intending any um, commentary on yourself or, or, or whichever artist it is. Yeah, I think that's fine. I, I'm glad they have their club, uh, but I just I, I don't want to be there. <laughs> but you know, that, that said, I do I do hear from. Uh, you know, really serious readers of the Phantom. They've been readers a long time, and they don't always like what I'm doing. But I'll I'll listen, you know, and I'll I'll respond. And um, uh, you know, sometimes I learn something. Uh, but those uh, sometimes I'll they'll get in touch by uh, through the blog, and they'll write a comment. You know, a comment not on a particular post. It'll just be um, you know not for publication, but. You know, I hate when you did this, you know, on the Phantom, yeah. And I, I always respond and I engage those folks. Um, I, you know, um, they tend to, some of them I'll correspond with for years and get to know them and get to know their families. And then they disappear. And I, I have to think, you know, they're old, they're old, you know, and they, hey, you know, the, they, they, uh, the Reaper comes along and you don't, hear from someone for a year, you can kind of figure out oh, what happened to the old guy in Alabama or what happened to, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I love to hear, I love to hear feedback on it. But you guys, you can be my eyes and ears in the comments section. <laughs> if, if something has real merit, please call it to my attention. Oh, uh, I don't even bother rating myself because majority of them are like I think the word that Dan used they're just peanuts they're, <laughs> like, they're just not even worth the time of day and it's sad, it was sad to hear that um, Paul would take it so to heart some of their feedback because well, I, I met Paul when he came to Australia a couple of years ago and he, um, and he was you know he was such a nice guy yeah he was a sweet guy and uh, just uh, didn't you know he he um kind of felt like he was failing if he was criticized and um, yeah it's too bad but I was uh, you know with Paul you know Paul would you know call me up and tell me oh how much he was hurting because something someone said and uh, to me it was like the old you know Henny Youngman joke which is you know doctor it hurts when I do this and the doctor says don't do that <laughs> you know, stop uh, but Paul couldn't, you know, if people were talking about his work, he, uh, he wanted to see what they were saying. On, on one hand, that's good, the fact that he had so much pride in his work. But I guess, yeah, when, you, when people are just being idiots for the sake of being idiots, which happens quite a lot on social media, that's, um, yeah, that's that, that is sad to hear. So, speaking of Paul coming out to Australia, Tony, are we any chance of uh, seeing you come out to Australia to, to get on the convention circuit and uh, meet some fans over here? I think you'd rather the motorbike tour. Oh, well, look, we've got some wide yeah. open spaces. Uh, you could certainly um, hook on down the highway. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, well, there's uh, actually a, a, a fellow I'm uh, acquainted with in uh, Canada, he's in British Columbia who is uh, heading to Australia to, to ride around the continent. And uh, 
Yeah, I'm kind of envious of that. He's actually uh, he's actually in writing Death Valley uh, okay. this week as kind of a tune-up. Um, and I know you've got it's some it's it's pretty hot in places, right? So he's going to have to. Uh, <laughs> well, Death, Death Valley sounds like a uh, a good prepping ground. Well, it's a good. What's the highway, German? Um, you're, you're in Western Australia. That's a, like, isn't it like a 300-kilometer section with no corners? Uh, yeah, just just one straight line, and they've actually got the world's largest golf course. Where every like 100 k's or something, you've got another hole. <laughs> <laughs> well, the I've seen. Um, oh gosh, what's the name of the movie? Uh, Tracks. Have you seen that? Uh, uh, about- the young woman who walked across uh, like 2,000 miles to the Indian Ocean in the 70s, I think, uh, shooting wild bull camels, and her dog got poisoned. And it's a fascinating adventure story. She's kind of a she's kind of a Heloise Walker type of character. Uh, but that's all about the rigors of uh, of Australia, although. Um, you know, I've seen uh, Quigley Down Under, so I suppose I know something from that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, I, I know I speak for the for the pair of us and most Australian fans, I would think, when we'd say we'd love to see you come out here, whether it's for a Sydney Supernova or, uh, you know, uh, meet some fans over in, over in Australia. The the door's always open. Well, well thank you. You could, you could probably jump on your bike and just go from town to town where all the fans are, and you'll probably meet the majority of... Uh, of um, of probably go to the majority of Australia as well. Uh, sounds wonderful. The uh, the next overseas thing will be uh, South America, hopefully in uh, November. Um, where uh, if this happens, uh, my riding partner on that he's in South Africa now on a motorcycle jaunt. Uh, but we're uh, we think we've got a shipping deal to ship the bikes into Colombia. And we'll uh, meet them there and ride south down to where the continent ends. And basically, you're looking at Antarctica across the water. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah. So maybe Australia after that, that would uh, that would be wonderful. You know, one of, uh, one of my memories of childhood uh, was of, uh, I was 15 years old. And... Uh, a pal of mine, his uncle was in the Merchant Marines, and he was based in Australia. And this guy's uh, ship was docked in Philadelphia. And he told us stories of Australia. Just decided, we're going. We're, we're going to get on this boat, you know, and go to Australia. And, uh, you know, typical 15-year-old boy stuff. Uh, and our, our nerve failed at the last moment when we were trying to figure a way onto this ship. And uh, we were just suddenly intimidated by it. And in in hindsight, that was perfectly sensible. If, if you know, I just think it's a very long sail from Philadelphia to Australia when you're in the brig, you know? <laughs> I think there's probably a lot of throwing up in the brig on the way. It's probably uh, it's, it's a long trip even on the plane, let alone a boat. Uh, I, I do remember we were really impressed with the uncle, and he was kind of a scary character. Uh, he could have been in his own comic. He uh, 
had been like gravely wounded by a hand grenade in World War II, and uh, he was you know, like uh, completely scarred up and a, 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 a face that was so interesting you couldn't you couldn't not look at it. Uh, what history there? But uh, but yeah, he uh, we were completely taken with his tales of Australia. Now my my friend to this day, now we're 63 years old. <clears throat> it's a lot lot of a lot of water under the bridge between 15 and 63. To this day, he has a memory of us getting on the ship and then chickening out and getting back down the campsite. That never happened. I don't know how he, I don't know how he came up with this, but we, I have to say, no, we, we chickened out before we got on the ship. <laughs> like what you said before about the, the human brain filling in the gaps as it wants to be filled. So. <laughs> it really does. Uh, false memory. Yeah, that's a, uh, yeah. So many people remember things that just never, never came close to happening. <laughs> but those that's probably the case for a lot of Phantom fans going, oh, this isn't how Lee Falk would have done it. Well, actually, it, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, I've heard that, too, that, um, you know, you, you, you see the stories through the eyes of um, a child when you're a six-year-old reading them. And, you know, and these stories that you remember were just so terrific and so engrossing. If you read them years later, you definitely see them differently. Yeah, um, I know it's been the uh, that's been the case with me anyway. So <laughs> a lot of th- a lot of times people say you should be writing stories like the Hanta Witch, and it's like, well, if you go back and read the Hanta Witch, you might think it's dated. And, and yeah. yeah, so um, you, you've been writing the the Phantom Strip for twenty years thereabouts, and um, Lee Fork did it for sixty. So that's you've you've covered about a quarter of the time and a about a quarter of the <laughs> journey. At what point do you go, you know what, that leaf fork is fine, but now it's a, a Tony DePaul legacy or it's, it's um, you know, you're entitled to make your own changes and it's, it's you know, you've been there for long enough and it's part of your journey now. Yeah, well, I don't think I'm there yet. I think <laughs> that I really do. Uh, you know, it's funny because... Uh, I mean, I'm not at all wired in uh, conservative ways. <laughs> I mean, it's probably <laughs> conservative is probably the last word that describes me. But um, or maybe in the uh, in the old original sense of being cautious and prudent. Uh, yeah, I am certainly that with the Falk legacy. I mean, I I would hate to go down in history as the guy who ruined this genius thing that Falk had going. <laughs> yeah. I'll leave that for the next writer. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I'm kind of careful about careful about changing it. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I kind of hope, I kind of hope to keep doing this uh, as long as I'm, you know, making carbon dioxide. And um, maybe at some point, you're right. Maybe I'll just say, okay, uh, it's time to really. Uh, Instead of just feeding a little more throttle, a little less throttle, we'll just shift gears here and do something a little different. Uh, and maybe that'll be the passing of the 21st Phantom. You know. And, and look, I think depending on how that's done and, and you know where Heloise fits into all of that and all that sort of thing, um, you know, there, there, there could well be a time and a place for that to happen. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, increasingly, I've started to think uh, that that's that's possible. Um, I know Mike was of the opinion that uh, King Features would never approve it, and he might be right. You know, I, I just haven't had that discussion with Evelyn, but you know what? I'll I, I will. Now that we've done this, <laughs> <laughs> it, it can't hurt to to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, boy, if, it's, if it ever happens, they got all the forecasts are going to blame us now, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> feeding the genesis of the idea on the podcast <laughs> is uh, in the in the chronicle chamber. Is focused a uh, descriptive term or is it a pejorative? I don't really understand. Thank you for saying it. <laughs> I, I would consider myself. I, I sort of am the representative focused on the panel. I'm not as. Uh, not as old and crotchety as some of them, and, and I'm probably a little bit more open to um, to change than a, a true hardcore forecast. Um, whereas Jermaine seems to shift his position on a day to day basis. No, I'm I'm more of a, a modernist. Where it's like you know, I you know, I I love Lee Fork. You know, that's what I grew up on. That's what I fell in love with. But you know, I recognise there's a place for other stuff and I instead of having two universes I just like to keep it simple and just have like the one universe and just you know it's fork plus right yeah well yeah it's um, uh, I don't I don't really uh, I guess when I say that I'm not uh I don't look at it in a in a conservative way. I guess what I mean to say is that uh, <laughs> it, uh, it never the idea of dying unhappy never appealed to me. You know, so uh, so many people are really conservative that I know. Uh, it's like you're going to die unhappy. Like everything is bad now. Everything was great when I was a kid, and now everything's bad. And I just don't want to live that way. Uh, but but on the folk. Uh, uh, on the folk thing, I, I really do feel a responsibility to yeah. not, not, uh, not kind of do away with things that he spent a lot of time creating, but to advance that universe in sensible ways where I think if he was alive right now, he'd agree, yes, we're going to do this now, you know. So, uh, I mean, I ask myself those questions very seriously with every story. Um, I really do feel the responsibility toward him, even though I never yeah. never met the guy and could kick myself for never having met him. But you don't think you'll ever get to the stage where um, Tony DePaul is the narrator at the start of a uh, of a start of a story? Oh no 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 no! I'm uh, uh, no my reporter instincts would not allow that. <laughs> I try to try to be as invisible as possible. Was that was that your idea, um, Tony? Having the leaf fork at the beginning of the stories and, and the, yeah. all those who came in late sections. Yeah, I mean, I I thought it was kind of a tip of the hat to uh, mm. to Lee, and you know his name is on the strip. Yeah. So I'm thinking if someone has only been reading the Phantom for 20 years, they, don't, they probably don't even know who Lee Falk is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a couple of a uh, couple of funny. Uh, funny mishaps with this because it is kind of unusual 
And I think once they, they uh, you know, the colorist turned him into a black man, they thought he was an African. Uh, you know, so we've had a couple of funny uh, hiccups like that. But I hope readers like that. I mean, I, I you know, it's also, I kind of thought that it was honoring the thing that Falk really was about, which was producing stage plays. He's kind of presenting the comic as a stage play at that point. When you see him walking down the street where Walker is going, you know, or he's sitting, uh, Falk is sitting at a little table having a drink and Walker walks by. You know, it's, it just seemed like kind of a fun thing to do. Yeah, no, I, um, I like it. Good. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to continue with that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost a little bit breaking through the fourth wall, but uh, in, a, in a really uh, acceptable way, I suppose. You know, one thing I couldn't get, uh, uh, this was a funny, funny thing be- between me and Paul. We had this discussion many times, but Paul said, you know, this is, uh, this is Lee Falk, you know, and he would want to draw Lee as he was, as Paul remembered him. And I'm like, no, 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 this is a classic strip. Uh, we want to see Lee in his prime. Yeah. And we real tug of war on that. You know, I like kind of the, the 1940s Lee to be that guy, you know, this vital, you know, middle-aged man in, his, in the prime of life introducing you to his story. Because I think subliminally, if you show him as an old man, you're kind of suggesting that this, this whole enterprise is very old, you know, and maybe stale. So, uh, but uh, Paul was kind of a purist on that. And he would draw, you know, the jowly old Lee. <laughs> <laughs> say no Paul come on you know uh, but um, Mike gets it Mike uh, yeah but we'll uh, I think he's been which story was he in of Mike's um, well he started the curse of old man Moss. yes 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 he did so uh, yeah so <laughs> so we're, we're more yeah Mike's got that down so do you um do you write differently for the daily and the Sunday? Do you think of them in different ways? Do you have in the way that you approach writing them? Uh yeah, actually I think so. Uh I mean the the tough thing about the um the dailies is the space. I mean we're just so tight on space. Um gosh, I envy I mean, Lee had four panels a day to play with and uh you know, they, King would like two, you know, because these things are printed so small. And uh, I find that you really can't tell a story with two panels. I mean, it gives, I think the way I've always described it to people is that you've got two beats and it, it gives the, the, the sound that your story makes in the ear is like a flat tire. You know, it's like ba-bum, 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 ba-bum. And it's like you can't really get any kind of rhythm going in the story. So, you know, I try to go to three panels maybe three days a week uh, and two the other days. And, uh, gosh, there's nothing that, you know, I kind of regret more than to see a two-panel day that could have been a one-panel day, like a really big one-panel day. I just saw one in last week's proofs. Um, so I always look at every week as it comes in and try to try to learn, try to adapt. Um, 
Yeah, so it's definitely it's it's a different writing style uh, completely. Because on the on the um, on the Sunday side, I can get as few as five or as many as eight panels. Yeah, and there's a different pace to the to the dialogue certainly. Uh, uh, but even in all cases, that dialogue has to be has to be fairly spare. Uh, the only time you can get away with kind of filling up your balloons and doing a little bit of exposition is when there's no action. You know, it's when, uh, like I think in today's strip in that second panel, uh, it's Diana getting this TV report yes. on what's happening with this failed bomber. And that's really unusually wordy. And the only way I could get away with that is uh, th there's nothing going on. It's Diana sitting there. You know, uh, and occasionally you need that to get a little momentum going in the story. Yeah. So, but I'm I'm kind of excited about maybe the next six weeks, seven weeks of this story, because it's pretty much all action, and uh, Mike is so good with that. You can kind of let him run. You know, I don't need to say much of anything. I mean, the only time I really do art direction is when it's for the sake of continuity. But a guy who is as good as Mike, you just kind of, he gets it. And uh, he'll, he'll surprise you. You know, it'll be better than you thought it could be. So, uh, so I'm really excited to see what he does with the next six or seven weeks of copy that he's got. So. We, never did see, uh, we never did see Steven jump in. No. No. Um, he's, he's, I think he said his kids are trying to kill him, kill each other today, so he needs to keep an eye on them. <laughs> See, okay. un, unlike the rest, because I've got uh, two girls and, and the one son, um, he's got two boys. He's the only one of us who have got multiple boys, and, and maybe that's telling as to why he's not here. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll meet him next time. Uh, you know, it might be fun to do a podcast after a particular story if you're interested. Yeah, yeah. we'd love to be able because, to that, that's another thing about the comments column, by the way. It's that it's kind of like doing a movie review on 30 seconds in the middle of a movie. Great, yeah. Or doing a book review on three sentences on page 82, you know. Uh, but uh, if we could talk about a complete story. Well, and that's where I, I really, you've mentioned your blog a few times, and, and we should totally give that a plug, um, TonyDePaul.net, um, The Nickels of Man. Where, where did you uh, come up with The Nickels of Man as your title for that? <laughs> uh, not many people know what that is. There may be, uh, I'll divulge it here. There may be three people in the world who know what that means. Uh, and it's a phrase that I came up with early in uh, journalism. Where, uh, you know, it's so competitive with journalism that reporters are always trying to get ahead, especially the really ambitious ones who want to go on to the New York Times and the Washington Post. And our, our newspaper here in Providence was a really well-respected feeder paper in all the major papers. Um, the, some that are not, not so major anymore. Um, but 20 years ago, they were huge, you know, and certain really ambitious personalities were trying to get into those newspapers. So occasionally you would see reporters um, kind of cultivating relationships with editors to get better assignments. 
and uh, you know that sort of thing to get off staff and get some free time to try to win a prize and all that. And it kind of became an in-house joke. I mean, some of it was so egregious and kind of hard to watch, like this almost like sort of flirtatious banter that had to do with running for an editor's coffee or something. And, you know, me and the pals I hung around with, we used to laugh at this, you know. And uh, we would say, oh, there goes... <laughs> One day I said, well, there goes so-and-so dancing for the nickels of the man again. <laughs> it, it, it meant to, like, supplicate yourself to someone who can do something for you to further your career. And uh, and so other people started using it. And <laughs> a friend of mine, sooner or later, was going to steal it to put in a novel of his. So I said, you know what, I'm going to make that the title of my blog so you can't steal it. <laughs> uh, it's used ironically because it, it, was, it started out to be a motorcycle travel blog. And you know what, when you're you know, a free man on the earth out there on your motorcycle, just going where you want to go every day, the last thing you're doing is dancing for the nickels of the man. Sure, so sure. that's the ironic use of it, <laughs> of the term. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, um, um, I, I certainly, so, the, the, particularly the blog posts you put up, like you were saying at the end of stories where you, you sort of go through and talk about um, the journey that the characters have been on. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I love motorbikes as well, as you know, and, and um, nothing better than, than getting out and, and in your own space and the wind in your face and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so I, I enjoy those blog posts that you write, but I'm glad that you've brought some of the phantom uh, commentary into it as well. Um, and if, if, yeah, we'd love to, to have a chat at the, at the conclusion of stories and, and get your thoughts on, on how the final product went and, and all of that sort of stuff as well. It'll be really informative for us. Well, and, and for me, yeah, I, I, um, I could learn something from that conversation, so I'd, I'd definitely like to do that. Awesome, awesome. Well, so, we'll sign you up as a, as a regular guest then um, at, at the conclusion yeah. of the stories. <laughs> that would be terrific, and I'll, uh, I'll meet Stephen next time. Cool. Yes. All right. Well, um, uh, any other questions, Dan? No, just thank you so much for your time. It's um, you know we've spent far longer talking than I than I had hoped. But when I was sort of we were going together putting these questions together, I thought there's no way we're going to get through all of these. And um, people can see from the the changes in the lighting around us that we've been talking for ages. And uh, just so genuinely appreciate your time, Tony. It's um, very generous of you, and um, you know I've got a lot out of it, and I'm sure that the people who've been listening have as well. So thank you very much. It's my pleasure. I, I enjoyed every minute of it. And uh, <laughs> I have to tell you, last evening, um, I listened again to uh, Mike's podcast because I enjoyed it so much the first time around. And my, my wife was sitting here reading a book, and so she was kind of hearing bits and pieces of it. And she said to me, uh, she says, yours probably won't be as interesting as Mike's. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, well, thanks, babe. You know, that's, that's great. <laughs> you may be right. But, um, yeah, Mike is such an interesting guy, and I, I, need to, uh, I need to get down to Philly very soon to finally meet him face-to-face. Yeah, I reckon that would be good, and a photo or something like that as well. You bet. Um, yeah, so, again, thank you from behalf of me and everyone else um, for joining us, Tony. Um been a while in the making. Um, I think we've been chatting on and off for like five, six years. 
well. So that's um, it's been good to, I guess, you know, meet a little bit more formally than just an email. Um, so yeah, so have you got anything else you wanted to uh, say before we um, finish up? No, I just thanks for the opportunity, and uh, I I really enjoyed it. It uh, it ends my week on a on a high note. Awesome. Well, thank you, um, thank you, Tony, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll let you go. Thank you. See ya. Very good. Take care. Wow. That was a good podcast. Uh, thanks to Tony for joining us um, and giving us two and a half hours plus of his time. Um, Dan, you enjoy that? Oh, mate, I'm, I'm blown away. I was very excited um, in the lead up, as you know, and um, it more than exceeded my, uh, my hopes, I suppose. Um, just as I said to Tony, I just really appreciate how, um, how open and uh, generous he was with his time. And, you know, no matter what foolish question we wanted to ask, he was happy to go down that... Um, that path with us so um yeah fantastic yeah yeah and uh also thanks to the patreon um supporters that sent through some questions so that's something we'll probably do more of is if you're a patreon supporter and um when we have special guests we'll send out a, a call out and then give you the opportunity to ask some questions i think that was a good idea as well yeah, yeah um yeah, it's it was um, the thing that the thing that interests me most was when we talked about the death of twenty first fan. You can kind of see his eyes just lighting up, like possible ideas, and you can see kind of like the genesis turning and and stuff as as we were talking about it. So, <laughs> and, and you mentioned it when we were there about oh no, people are going to blame us. It, it, there is a little bit of that. <laughs> he, having had the conversation, now he's going to go and talk to Evelyn. So, um, yeah, um, it would be very interesting to see what, what comes of that conversation between uh, Tony and King Features to see what direction they, what they want to take it. Mm. Well, I guess the good thing is is majority of focus probably by yourself and John, don't know how to use uh, a podcast and how to listen to it. So uh, we might be okay. <laughs> as long as, um, <laughs> well, he said that uh, Kit won't be, will, will not be buried in the Skull Cave, as long as there's no reference to getting buried in the Chronicle Chamber or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, that was very good. Uh, thank you for everyone for listening. Um, as per normal, you can uh, find us at chroniclechamber.com. We have all the various social medias with uh, Twitter, um, Instagram uh, and Facebook um, uh, which we are trying to get our head around using a little bit better uh, we're trying to use this program which will disperse all posts but we're having a bit of issues with that so just bear with us um, you can subscribe to all of your iTunes uh, you can subscribe to the podcast using iTunes if you're an Android user I think there's programs called Podbean I think is one of them um, and there's some, there'll be some various other ones as well. Um, uh, sorry to Steve, but um, he didn't come. Again, he keeps up with his tradition. Um, I'm a little bit nervous about inviting um, Alex as a guest because Steve <laughs> probably just won't show up. <laughs> it's, uh, yep, um, I, I don't know what to say, Steve. You've missed out on an absolute ripper. Um, I, 
I'm stunned now in hindsight that he managed to turn up for Cy Barry, so <laughs> <laughs> and ten minutes of Mike Manley as well, so um, <laughs> and uh, to Pam, Tony's wife, hopefully you're listening to this still and you find it as interesting as Mike Manley's podcast. Yeah, well, I, I, I certainly have. Not that not that Mike was uh, boring in any way whatsoever, but uh, look, the, the opportunity to pick the brain of the man who has been in charge of the newspaper strip for you know, the last 20 years, um, it was just fascinating. Just fascinating. So from all of us, goodbye. Happy phantoming, or if you're uh, other, happy chant cholming as well um, happy kizzle masking happy phantoming or happy phantoming oh I'm just going to stick with happy phantoming cheers <laughs>